0: VOCM presents Open Line. The opinions expressed on this show are not necessarily those of the station. And now your host, Patty Daly.
1: Well, all right, and good morning to you. Thank you so much for tuning in to the program. It's Tuesday, February the 21st. This is Open Line. I'm your host, Patty Daly, and Fonce King is sitting in the producer's chair again today. You'll be speaking with Fonts when you give us a call and get in the queue and on the air. If you're in the St. John's Metro region, the number to dial is 2735211. Or elsewhere, it's toll-free long distance, one 590 vocm which is 86. 26, well, pretty fierce overnight, and the snow will get a proverbial cutting in this neck of the woods. Although, I'm not so sure how much ice and snow will go away today with all the rain that's in the forecast. But whatever snow remains is going to be jam-packed, solid, dense, wet, all snow. So hopefully you don't have to fight with much of that today. And just a friendly reminder. And I saw this poor woman on Torbay Road this morning get absolutely soaked by a passing vehicle. Just be mindful that close by the sidewalks, if they're lucky enough to have a sidewalk to walk on, we don't want to be soaking the pedestrians in these cold days. All right. Of course, there's going to be some travel interruptions. You know, the Belle Island Ferry tied up. There was a bunch of uh, flights that were canceled or delayed out of St. John's International Airport. So You better check in. And given the heavy rains here, there's also heavy rains in PEI. That's impacting some of the uh, events at the Canada Winter Games, including long track speed skating. They couldn't even put the skaters on the ice yesterday because of the temperatures outside and the heavy rain and what it meant for the ice inside the doors. All right, let's talk a bit of travel. So I'm sure if you're on social media, you saw the picture over the weekend of the piano that I suppose bounced out of the bed of a truck and landed on the outer ring road. It's all bad enough, a few years ago, I was behind this vehicle, which was absolutely headed to the dump, with a truckload of old grout, and a couple of pieces of old flashing came blowing out, blew over my vehicle, luckily didn't strike it, but the old piano story. So, look, it's a bit of fun, people had fun with it, and a bunch of memes that were floating around, but can you imagine if someone had to smack into or crash into that piano as it tumbled along the outer ring road? It gets a bit tiring, you know? I don't know why the go-to move isn't for you know the sporadic day or two here or there for the RNC to be at the dump, and upon your arrival, they inspect your load. If it's not tied down, you're issued a ticket right there and then. Because the tens of thousands of dollars it costs to clean up the Outer Ring Road when we get into the summer season can be avoided in large part, and certainly some of these big items that could have been potentially tragic if someone had to run into or was closely following the truck where the piano bounced out so anyway, maybe we can do a bit better at the dump itself. And speaking of the Outer Ring Road, which many people treat as a race track, on this date, seventy-five years ago, today in 1948, the National Association for Stock Car Auto Racing was established in Daytona Beach, Florida. We all know it better as NASCAR. So the legendary Bill France set up this racing circuit. At the beginning the promoters were pretty unscrupulous. They would possibly leave the race before the checkered flag flew, and consequently the drivers didn't get paid. At the beginning, they raced strictly stock cars. So exactly how you bought the car off the lot is how you had to race it. Now, of course, that's been modified all the way to they mimic a Toyota or a Chev or a Ford. But, of course, it's built for stock car racing. So, curiously, its premier race is the Daytona 500. But it's the first race of the year. The Daytona 500 was actually just this past Sunday won by a kid named Ricky Stenhouse Jr. It's only his third win on the NASCAR circuit. He was racing for a team that only has one car, which is... Not normal these days. It's the first time a single-car team has won since the Wood Brothers' legendary number 21 car, one being driven by Trevor Payne. But anyway, the racetrack that is the Outer Ring Road, the racetrack that is Daytona. Oh, and yesterday, if you're a family of one of the students that was impacted by the breakup between Gladney's bus services and the English-speaking school district, they said all the routes were restored yesterday. So the 4,000 students that were impacted last week without a bus ride to school, let me know how that went, if indeed it went the way you were hoping. Okay, sticking with travel for a second. So the Atlantic Canadian premiers are meeting on a variety of topics because, you know, we all know it to be true, in Atlanta, Canada, it really has felt like a bit of a disenfranchised region in the country. Now, there's some issues that pop up where we get a bit of ink and some headlines and some national coverage and attention. But by and large, we're sort of just left to our own devices, mostly because there's only, I think, about 31 federal seats in Atlanta, Canada. But they're talking about things like air travel. Okay, you know, talking about collaboration or being creative, for the provinces, I don't know how they join forces to talk about air travel because if you're operating Stanfield International outside of Halifax or the St. John's International Airport Authority or the airport in Fredericton or Moncton or in Charlottetown, of course, they want to do what's best for them. How can anything be done to encourage a carrier to put more routes in Atlantic Canada, as opposed to the airport authorities, which are businesses, would be competing for their own benefit. I don't know what that means to collaborate on that front, but I do think it's a big deal, and we just may, by and large, we shrug our shoulders and say, well, there's nothing we can do about that, so we just let the carriers go. Because, you know, they talk about the national carriers, but it really does feel like WestJet is a Western Canadian carrier, Air Canada is an Eastern Canadian carrier, which makes it even more complicated to try to get anything done. But maybe a much bigger deal for most people is issues regarding healthcare. And they say that coming on the 1st of May this year there will be something that they call the Atlantic Physicians Register. This is probably a very good thing for Atlantic Canadians. So what it does is removes all of the paper warfare and the time and the cost and the frustration to even apply to be a locum doctor. So all the accreditation, all the licenses will be the same throughout Atlantic Canada. So If you have a doctor in Nova Scotia who thinks it would be great to have a summer uh, in some part of Newfoundland or Labrador, he or she can simply come, you know, through coordination with the health authority, can simply come over without all the onerous tasks uh, that once faced them. So I think this is probably a very good move. It sounds like the College of Physicians and Surgeons is on side. Hopefully this conversation gets extended to national standards because I think that will benefit Canadians from from the West Coast to the East Coast. But So this is probably a very good move that they've been apparently working on for quite a long time, but it's coming to pass. So what do you think of that? And, of course, the national standards conversation. I don't know why the federal government, as opposed to simply relying on its provincial authority and the negotiations or the haggling over the health care transfer dollar, as opposed to you know bringing people into the room so we can get some national standardized issues going and whether that be influencing medical schools, of which there's only 17 in the country, and the various regional health authorities and the provinces, to talk about how many doctors who are from Canada who couldn't get one of the highly coveted seats in a Canadian medical school, trained abroad and can't get a residency in the country, all the while every single province struggling to get doctors. And yet we have this huge pool of trained physicians. Now, of course, we they need to have gone to a medical school that's up to Canadian standards, of course, but that stuff can be carefully evaluated. But that's that one there is extremely frustrating, where we've got doctors, but we can't get them into the country because they can't get a residency. Also, here's sticking with travel and an overlap with healthcare, I hear the NDP member from Lab West, Jordan Brown, speaking to this, this issue, which he has many times in the past. It's regarding the cost of medical travel assistance program, MTAP. So it is a bit of a flawed process, I would suggest. Enormous costs, as we know, to travel from Labrador to the island or vice versa. Okay, so you get a one-time coverage for your air travel and accommodations. There's some confusion in the story for me anyway. He says, uh, cost of food and accommodations when traveling to the island for healthcare is left to the patient. When, when I read the MTAP program, there is some coverage for that as far as I understand, so we're looking to speak with Mr. Brown this morning. So, you know, there's all kinds of raffles and 50 50s, and people uh, turning to their church or some different association to try to get some money up front so they can make their medical travel to whatever part of the island for treatment. As opposed to, you now, I guess part of this is that when you cover the cost up front, you're then obliged to prove that you did attend your appointment, that you did get your MRI, that you did get whatever CAT scan or PET scan, as opposed to the province, which will approve the cost coverage. We'll give you the money up front, give you a travel voucher, so that you don't have to have a 50-50 to be able to get to the island. Because the cost is extraordinary. You could be here for two or three days and cost thousands and thousands of dollars. So Mr. Brown is speaking to that one again. And if you're in Labrador or Lab West specifically, happy to have you on the program to talk about that this morning. Man, my writing is terrible. Okay, here we go. While I was away last week, I don't know if it's curious, but I think it's absolutely interesting. That last year's crab fishery, we know that when ground fish was really in desperate straits, that it was shellfish that really saved the day in the provinces of fishery. So whether that be shrimp, and specifically crab, and lobster as well. But for crab last year, extremely lucrative fishery, about 30% of it remains in cold storage. Why? Because the market that we used to sell about half our crab to, is my understanding, is in Japan. But Japan were getting a better price from Russian harvesters, and consequently, a lot of our crab did not get sold. So the FFAW and what many people might consider or to call their nemesis is the Association for Seafood Producers. There's long been headbutting between the two. But now on this one, apparently they're joining forces. It's being applauded by the government to try to make sure that this year's crab fishery goes better than last year's. They're hoping that the minister responsible, Derek Bragg, is attentive to this. My question for both entities will be, what influence do we think a provincial minister can have on international relations, like for instance, if Japan isn't going to impose sanctions on Russia like many other countries in the G20 have had, what are we asking anybody to do as opposed to Federal Fisheries Minister uh, Joyce Murray and or any other senior diplomat in the country, but anyway that's probably a really smart move as they get into the business of negotiating price for crab and other issues, a collaboration between the uh, FFAW and the Association for Seafood Producers. Sticking with the fishery for a second. It is wild, the difference between management of the fishery on the west coast of Canada versus the east coast of Canada. And that's every wild stock. And in this case, let's talk about aquaculture. So the federal government leaves it entirely up to the provincial government to deal with aquaculture related issues in this province versus how they handle it in British Columbia, for instance. So the word is, and Minister Joyce Murray, Federal Fisheries Minister Joyce Murray has written to the Prime Minister to tell him that the department will not be renewing some 15 open pen aquaculture licenses off the coast of BC in the Discovery Islands. You know they don't meddle, we'll call it, in our aquaculture industry and of course there's long been concerns with interaction between farmed salmon and wild species whether it be sharing of disease and some of these mutant hybrid salmon that we see in some rivers But, of course, there's a jobs consideration here. They say in British Columbia, if these operations go by the wayside, these 15 operations, almost 5,000 jobs, $1.2 billion in economic activity throughout the year. Now, of course, if you ask people living in certain parts of this province where they've seen open pen fish farming come to town, it was a savior. And if it went away, the community would be on its way to going away as well. So whether it be in Harbor, Breton, or otherwise. But that move made by the feds, And the B.C. coast versus how they handle aquaculture in this province is, I've never had a firm understanding. Even though the entirety of the wild fishery is a different kind of fish off the B.C. coast versus Atlantic Canadian provinces, but that one's out there. All right, we have been talking about the pending business sanction decision coming from Equinor and BP Canada regarding the, the Beta Nord project. And what that's going to look like here in this province. So the worry from TradesNL, and of course they've been speaking of this uh, quite forcefully with their Build Right Here conversation, or campaign, pardon me, and now a little bit more, not much in the way of detail, but some commentary coming from Equinor about the potential and their preference to build the entire vessel somewhere outside of this province, maybe in Asia. So not just the hull, which we can't do here apparently without the lay-down yard capacity, But all of the top side's work we absolutely could do. But they're really feeling like and sounding like that work's going to be done elsewhere. Now they try to temper it by saying that there's going to be at least double the amount of subsea infrastructure done here in the province and there will indeed be potentially more financial benefit to the province. That all sounds good, I imagine, if you're an Equinor executive. And yes, more money to the province is a good thing, but there's nothing quite like jobs created, and money in people's pocket. Because it's not just for that family or individual to have a good-paying job in this province for over X number of years, but of course that money gets circulated. You know, there's nothing uh, like an economic driver of how we spend our money as individuals or families versus relying on government to do the quote-unquote right thing with whatever money comes in the door. So a lot yet to be understood. Maybe we will speak with Darren King today. But you know, Equinor says, only the best projects in the world will proceed. This one looks like a pretty good one. They've hit all these targets regarding net zero emissions, or they say they have anyway, with some 137 mitigation measures in place. There's about a billion barrels of oil. And in the subsea infrastructure, there might be tiebacks of some eight different sites. So, yeah, that all sounds good. But the lack of topsides work, potentially, I would imagine, is not a welcomed piece of uh, information in the ears of the folks in the trades, especially those represented by Darren King and Trades TradesNL, but we'll maybe see if Mr. King would like to comment on these newest comments coming from Equinor itself. And interestingly, you know, not everybody is impacted by any industry in particular, but the big ones always come with oil announcements, don't they? I mean, just think about what it's meant, not only for jobs offshore, onshore, supply, and then the money that ripples through the economy. One of the big impacts that it has had historically is the influence on the price of a house. And we know what's going on in this country and in this province regarding housing, whether it be to buy a home, add in mortgage stress test or whatever the like, and rent and vacancy rates. Then you add to it, you know, we hear from Minister John Abbott, who is responsible for Newfoundland and Labrador housing, that he says there's going to be some 750 new new units coming on stream. Good news. It's only a fraction of the numbers that we talked about, the relationship between the province, the feds, about the number of housing units that are needed and the monies put aside for it. Then you add to it in the issue of homelessness, where, you know, sometimes I think it's thought of that it's a Happy Valley Goose Bay issue, or it's a St. John's issue, or a Northeast Avalon issue. But of course it's not. It's probably in many nooks and crannies, if not all in the province. So we're hearing from Gander, a lady named Kimberly Bears, talking about this specific issue. It might not be that you see people sleeping on the streets. It might not be that you see uh, big numbers of panhandlers. And, of course, we do see that in St. John's. But she says it's real in her community as well. And she's with Gander's Housing and Homelessness Network. And Fonster gave me a thumbs up. I think that means Ms. Bears is going to join us to help paint a picture of what she's seeing in her community. Because the hidden homelessness, I don't think it's factored in as much as it should. We can see you sleeping in the doorway. We can see you sleeping in the foyer of an ATM machine. We can see you going to an emergency shelter, and they're over capacity. But going from couch to couch and friend to friend and family member to family member is someone who is absolutely on the verge of being in the foyer of the ATM, of being in the Metro bus shelter. So hopefully Ms. Spears is going to have time to help us understand what's going on in her community because they think it's, we'll just call it bad enough, that they need an emergency shelter there as well. So that issue regarding homelessness is a big one, and the numbers are growing every day, not just here in town, but right across the province. How are we doing on the telephone there, uh, Fonce? Right, should I get a couple of quick ones in before we go? Oh, check in at the Scotties. So Team Stacy Curtis didn't have their game yesterday. They lost 14-8 to 8 to the territories. They're back on the ice today playing the wild card number two. I can't pronounce the lady's uh, name who's the skip. But bring it back to the local uh, level. With Haley going away and that deal between Ballyhaley and Clovelly, there goes the Ballyhaley Curling Club. That leaves a lot of curlers in a lurch, meaning the only curling club in this region will be at the Remax Center, of course. I heard Brian Madore mention in the newscast that Brad Guju is talking about trying to rectify that and putting a new curling club in play. So if you're a curler who is or was uh, curling at Haley, and if you want to talk about what this deal between Clovelly and Haley means, let's do exactly that. I've uh, got a couple of quicks here. Growlers won 4-2 down in Reading last night, continuing their winning ways. It was a matinee. Of course, it was President's Day in the United States. Uh, okay, let's get to the Twitter. I had a couple more, but we'll get to your calls. We are on Twitter. We're VOCM Open Line. Follow us there. Our email address is openline.focm.com. When we come back, let's have a great show. Only happens when you call. Kimberly Beers is there from the Gander Housing and Homelessness Network. We'll speak with Ms. Beers. And then Bob wants to talk about big oil. Don't go
2: away. Weekday mornings from 5.30 to 9. Jumpstart your day with Jerry Lynn Mackey and Ben Murphy. Newsmakers, traffic, weather, and more during your VOCM morning show.
0: This is Open Line on VOCM.
2: Welcome back to the program. Let's
1: begin on the top of the board on line number one. and say good morning to the chair of Gander's Housing and Homelessness Network. That's Kimberly Beers. Good morning, Kimberly. You're on the air.
3: Good morning, Patty. Thank you for having
1: me. I'm happy to have you on the program. You know, sometimes maybe we get hyper-focused on issues like that are right in front of me. I can see homelessness in St. John's, right? I can see the homelessness stories and the pictures coming from Happy Valley Goose Bay. And I think some people maybe believe that in other smaller communities, even the size of Gander, that it might not be as prevalent a problem that it absolutely is here in this city. Paint the picture of what you see in your community.
3: Well, I think you're absolutely right. I think that um, one of the dynamics, of course, of living in Newfoundland Labrador is that we have very friendly people and people who want to help out in the best way they can. And some people allow people to come and stay in their homes. Um, You know, a lot of couch surfing. So we would call that like hidden homeless. So people are just uh, still really don't have a permanent place to be, but they're going from place to place without a permanent place to be. And so you may not see the panhandling the thing. But yet, if you really look, you can see people, you might see them going down the the trails with backpacks early in the morning around the same time every day. So we know it's here, and with any affluent town, it's going to be present. It's just that sometimes it's not as obvious as other in bigger cities or bigger places, or the addictions issue is not quite the same in some places as it is in others.
1: You know, we look at the contributing factors that lead to uh, more and more homeless people in this area, and whether it be the vacancy rate, which has changed because maybe people cashed out of a uh, piece of... uh, Uh, revenue-driving piece of uh, infrastructure, whether it be a home or a multi-unit home. Then it might be some Airbnbs that can get get converted out of the rental market. So what do you think is leading to it in your community? Addictions is always going to play a role here, too. So is it the prices people are unable to afford, or is it life circumstance that you see that more people are in precarious positions, say, for instance, the hidden homeless?
3: I think it's a a, a bit of a combination of a lot of things. Uh, one is definitely the number of places that people can have here. I mean, I've even heard of people who you know don't have a problem with finances, but just. F- actually physically finding an apartment or a house to live in because there's just not the amount that we need here. Um, Because we are not talking just about uh, homelessness. We're talking about affordable housing or housing that is available for people because we want to, you know, really tackle all of it along the whole continuum of housing. Um, So we want to hopefully help people go from one place to another. If they're renting, maybe they have a desire to buy, um, that kind of thing, give them the options to be able to still live in our community communities and um, help them along the way. So we're really focused on uh, wraparound programs and, you know, having resources available for people, which is, you know, it's not just enough to put a roof over someone's head. We want to help them along in their own journey um, and with, you know, as many things that we can do to help along that way.
1: There's lots of interesting models out there about homelessness and housing, and then a pathway to not be back in that predicament again in the future. So, you know, you're absolutely right. It's a wraparound issue. Simply not, well, here's the key, go on in, get in and out of the elements, and, you know, here's a hot plate and get yourself warmed up. There's much more to it than that. Give us an idea what it looks like in Gander and the surrounding area regarding Newfoundland Labrador housing. Because we know there's so many units that are boarded up. Minister Abbott says there's some uh, 750 going to come online here in the near future. Is that part of the solution there? Do you have a lot of boarded-up housing units out there?
3: Um, I'm only newer to the area, so I'm not familiar with exactly how much we have in stock with regard to NL housing. But we do know that there is no capacity for any more. So, yeah, we definitely need more here because there are definitely people who qualify and are not able to get in. We do know currently that there are a number of people who are put up in hotels here just simply because they have nowhere to go. Now, some of them, yes, there may be other issues besides um you know not get into NLHC housing but sometimes it is simply that they just don't have a place and they can't afford an apartment um so we do know and um yeah so it's it's definitely a problem now I, I have to say that one thing that has happened is that there is a unit that is going to be available given to us by NLHC um to be used in the near future as an emergency shelter here because we have nothing uh, in the central region so if someone is homeless and like i said they'll be put up in a hotel or they'll be sent to st john's on a bus um, to be housed for a night or two or whatever um, but we're still waiting on that property and the tender is out which was supposed to be filled um, about a year ago or so but it's you know so we're, we're still waiting
1: Hotels are obviously not ideal solutions. In Gander, for anybody who's ever gone to a a conference that has attendees province-wide, Gander's a go-to spot, you know, the centralized hub. And so all of a sudden, hotel rooms are at a premium or not available at all. So what kind of emergency... And those those are the people who,
3: you know, the ones that are housing um, vulnerable are the ones that are put out first when it comes Mm -hmm. to those conferences coming.
1: For sure. No doubt. So what type of emergency shelter are we talking about? Because there's different models there as well, you know, all the way to something like the gathering place, where it's an emergency shelter, it's got programs and services and dental care and hair care and all kinds of stuff. Just help us illustrate what type of emergency shelter you're asking for or looking for in Gander.
3: For right now, we're looking for very much a basic one so that we have a place for people to stay. However, our um, our network of people who work around, you know, the stakeholders that we feel like are around the table at our monthly meetings are the people who are going to provide some of the wraparound services to go alongside. So we're actually looking for a place to have some beds and some a, a secure place for someone to be that's a safe environment for them to be in, but also um, that we would be able to provide the wraparound services, uh, you know, to those people who are in the place. And, you know, yes, absolutely, there's lots of different models for homelessness and uh, emergency shelter. But one thing that we really want to focus on here is that it's not, like I said, just a roof over someone's head. We want to be able to provide them with the dignity and respect that they want to make sure that they move along the continuum in their own life and in their own journey.
1: I appreciate the time. Anything else you'd like to say this morning, Kimberly?
3: No, I'm just glad that, um, I mean, we've struggled uh, to... You know get this out there to make sure that people are understanding and and it is like you said reset it the right at the beginning sometimes people don't realize the amount of housing and homelessness issues that are in towns until uh, there's a crisis and so we really don't want to get to the crisis point we want to make sure that we start to um, solve the problems before we get to that point so that we can help people
1: and it's like that in every walk of life isn't it when it arrives at the crisis scene then, of course, it has a major societal impact and it becomes more costly to deal with it as we react Absolutely. as opposed to prepare.
3: Yeah, so we're hoping to be a little bit more proactive uh, in definitely in the coming uh, days and months ahead and instead of reacting uh, like we often have to. I
1: uh, appreciate the time Sworn Kimberly. You're always welcome.
3: Thank you very much.
1: Take good care. You too. Okay, bye-bye. That's Kimberly Bear. She's the chair of Gander's Housing and Homelessness Network. Let's keep rolling here. Let's go to line two. Bob, you're on the
4: air. Yes, uh, Patty, I think it's terrible that our company allowing us to stew in our juice uh, just like uh, Quebec allowed us to stew in our juice for so many years. You know, it's immoral, it's shameful, it's wrong. It's. I think what's more uh, frustrating is that Newfoundlanders don't seem to be speaking up.
1: But what do you mean by stewing in our juice? What are they doing?
4: Well, uh, they're raking in uh, horrendous profits while we're getting very little. Doesn't that sound familiar? The same thing happened with Quebec and all under the auspices of the federal government. I mean, we had, uh, we didn't, it's, not, it's not our province's fault. We, the federal government had a situation where we thought they were going to shut down the oil play. So we give terrible concessions, like it's our whole history, really. We always lose out. We give them so many concessions that we're getting a pittance out of it. And that's Quebec all over again, and it's wrong, and it's immoral, and it's shameful. I mean, who's looking out for us? I don't expect shameless O'Reagan shameless to, uh, to uh, hurt his leader and cut short his career right away. but
1: By doing what?
4: By... Speaking up by saying what I'm saying, that it was wrong for for them to discourage our oil play like they did. They were, they were on hand to, to shut it down entirely only for the uh, uh, war in Ukraine. Everybody believes that. They were right on hand to shut it down entirely, leave it all in the ground.
1: So I, I hear people make, say that all the time.
4: Make those concessions.
1: Yeah, I hear that all the time, but... You know, the reality on the ground just doesn't jibe with that. I mean, every major oil player, and some of it's influenced by the war in Ukraine, of course it is. But, you know, there's zero applications in front of the Impact Assessment Agency of Canada. they released Beta Nord, record profits, record production. It's one thing to talk about record profits, but record production in Canada last year as well. So I'm not really sure who's killing the industry at this moment in time. But we've got still some opportunities in front of us here. So, what are you saying is the federal government implication about our province's woes or history and giveaways or pittances or what have you? Because we're the ones, once it gets green lipped by the feds, we're responsible for negotiating, whether it be for jobs on the ground or a royalty regime or an equity stake or all the rest of it. So, what's the federal government's role after they release a project?
4: Well, that's something you don't seem to be getting, uh, Patty. If they were, if the the minister was uh, waiting to decide on our fate about the oil company and about uh, whether he's going to shut it down or not or make it hard to make uh, up the bar. And we were all waiting breathlessly uh, for for what his decision was going to be. Uh, and he extended it a couple of times, so we knew there was, was bad news and uh, you know, so we had to make all kinds of concessions. That's what the atmosphere that the and this carbon tax is not the the five hundred dollars I'll make up for that. It's not the seven percent. It's how it discourages the oil companies. So they're creating the atmosphere, and that's why we ended up pushing us into making all those concessions to keep it alive. To make or big dead altogether, we didn't do that. So it's not. It is their fault. They didn't intercede with Quebec. Joey Smallwood approached Lester Pearson and asked him to intercede, and he wouldn't do it. So it's done under the not only the auspices of the federal government, it's done under their direct actions. Every action they do hurts us and makes it harder for us to get a good deal.
1: Yeah. Well, once I mean, once the opportunity has been approved or released from an environmental assessment, it really is up to us uh, to get the best deal we can. And I don't know who else outside the operator, Equinor and BP Canada, and the Province of Newfoundland and Labrador. I don't know what role any external influences play in whatever deal gets negotiated at the end of it. But okay.
4: Well, they know. uh they didn't know if they were going to be able to make any profits under them conditions. Now was a boom situation. So, I mean, we should have done the same thing with, as we did with, uh, uh, we didn't do with Quebec. So what, what we get a portion of whatever profits you make. We, we tie into what, if you make profit, we get profit. If you don't, we don't. You know I, I don't know. Uh, uh, shame, shameless, shameless Oregon was down here pushing that carbon tax and telling us about the $500. I mean, that's very cheap. That's, that's.
1: I think that has a bigger implication on individuals than it does like oil companies. Interestingly, the oil companies signed on formally to when Rachel Notley was the NDP Premier of uh, Alberta, they were in favour of the carbon tax as it was implied because they didn't pay it like me and you, right? They were given all kinds of opportunities for carbon capture and uh, investment in technology, investment in innovation. So they, they actually, not because I say so, because they said so to a company that they understood and they were in favor of. So I don't know what impact carbon tax will have on whether or not Equinor thinks a billion barrels is worth recovering. The big carbon tax implication for me is... The fact that in the individuals pay up front, yes, there's a rebate, but the rebate is an after-the-fact issue. And I do think a carbon tax does not and should never apply to home heating fuels, to be honest with you. I just don't think we can afford it. We know how many people today cannot afford home heating fuels the way they used to be able to. Now you add in the entirety of a carbon tax, a federal carbon tax, the home heating fuel, I think we got ourselves a problem.
4: Well, i got an aisle furnace, but I don't think that's the problem. I think it's how it- you know, billions of dollars. Do you worry? Do you, that hurts you at all, Paddy? That those billions of dollars are blowing in the wind and gone, and someone else is raking in all those having a boom. Uh, look at it, what's coming out of Alberta. They said they're 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 making a fortune, but they still can't hurry decarbonization. So you got those, uh, and you know those uh, anti-oil people. And, I mean, uh, uh, the plain truth is, if, if we don't take our share, someone else will uh, 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 step in there and take it. And it's not going to be able to be hurried up.
1: You, you, you seem to be putting uh, the, the finger of blame at the federal now, government.
4: The transition is going to take a long while, and it's going to take a lot of co- cooperation. No matter uh-huh. how people think we don't know how serious uh, climate change is, we do, but it still can't be hurried up, no matter how serious it is. its it got to take its course.
1: Yeah, but you're you're pointing a lot of the finger at the feds when, in fact, I think most of the blame that you're associating with lost uh, opportunity, lost revenue, kind of belongs with the province. I mean, look no further than the most recent COP, it was a COP27, that big environmental international meeting. Stephen Gibo, representing this country, refused to sign on to an international agreement to uh, get off fossil fuels, just did not sign it. Yeah, so I'm always kind of struggling with, you know, so-and-so is killing the oil industry when the oil industry is doing better than they ever have in the history of man. So, and we'll see if the development offshore here goes ahead at Payton Nord. That adds up to about $10 billion in royalties to the federal and provincial government. So there's huge money implications there. Add to it the potential for jobs, which I think is a big part of these, uh, I would imagine one of the big sticking points that they're trying to navigate through at this moment. Last word to you, Bob, go ahead.
4: Yeah, don't you think there's a pattern, Patty? We're losing out this time around. We lost out on uh, Hibernia. They said our oh, lease is getting us on their way. But we had to pay for uh, uh, concrete platforms or wait till they made their profits back. <clears throat> What's going to happen out of that deep sea and international waters? I bet you that whoever's going to pay the fee will uh, uh, fool that up. Uh, Patty don't you see a, cor- a pattern there are we
1: cursed, or are the people too too stupid? Uh, well, maybe I am stupid because i 'm not following every step that you're taking here Bob. The issue okay. I think well, you're anyway, talking uh, the issue that I think you're talking about offshore is it's outside the economic protective zone, and the country signed on to what they call article eighty two and that laws of the sea, and that was decades ago so this is the first time it's been tested. who is going to end up paying those hundreds of millions of dollars to the United nations? That's one of the arguments that's absolutely happening here. The province has said quite clearly they don't think we should be paying it because the province didn't sign on to the country signed on to. It, so the feds should take it on. And, of course, the feds won't. So we'll see what becomes of that. But, yeah. I-
4: Petty, uh, people are calling in every day about health care. Can you imagine if we were getting our fair share now or ever got our fair share from anything? Fishery or treated fairly. This confed- confederation hasn't done right by us. So they seem to be thinking small and fighting for money for health care when the billions of dollars are going that would pay for it. And as a getting our share is not it's fairness. I don't know. I'm exasperated.
1: Look, I think everyone wants as much as we can get, Bob. I mean, I don't think you, you no, feel I mean, like getting I mean, not, nothing, Patty.
4: You never have. And if we keep the pattern, we never will. Now, just as well, admit it.
1: I'm not one to just shrug my shoulders and say we're doomed because we're whatever word you want to use, stupid. But I would imagine everybody thinks we should get as much as possible on every, at every turn in every industry. Why wouldn't, sure, it, why wouldn't sure people think
4: is, that? Yes, but we'll, we haven't in the past, so what's us give me any faith that we'll be any different in the future.
1: I don't know what the future holds, but I think everyone agrees getting our fair shake is extremely important. It's the be-all and end-all, and I appreciate the time, Bob.
4: Okay, good luck to us. Huh?
1: <laughs> Fair enough. Take care. Okay. All right, bye-bye. Bye.
2: Let's go ahead and take a break. Don't go away. Saturday morning, join us for the Irish Newfoundland Show. Send your request to irishnl at vocm.com or submit them online at vocm.com.
0: This is Open Line on VOCM.
2: Welcome back to the
1: show. Coming up this Saturday night, February 25th, uh, 6 p.m. at Paradise Bowl, you get to grab your balls, your bowling balls for cancer. Try to help out families who are dealing with the impact of that diagnosis. Join us online. number one as one of the organizers behind this event. That's Jody Warren. Jody, you're on the air.
5: Hey, Patty, how are you?
1: Doing okay, sir. How about you?
5: Good, buddy, good. So we've got this event coming up on Saturday night. I'd like to tell everybody a little bit about the event, but first I'd like to tell everybody a little about Kyle and while we're having the event. So Kyle was a young man, just 21 years old, who passed away due to aggressive leukemia. He was an apprentice automotive technician. Um, He was a motorcycle enthusiast. Um, You know, he had a girlfriend he was madly in love with. Her name was Abby. He actually married her from his hospital bed. He had his whole life ahead of him. And, of course, this terrible disease uh, took him from us too soon. So when Kyle was actually going through his treatments, he had to travel to Ontario to get uh, get some more advanced treatment and everybody knows especially in the economy we're in now and uh, the price of airfare and what have you, that's not easy to do. So his family really wanted to keep Kyle's name alive and we wanted to be able to help out some other families in similar situations so we decided to go ahead and have this fundraiser and uh, we'll donate the money to another family who's in the same situation who needs to travel.
1: So it's a couple of different uh, layers inside one event. So you can bring the kids, and you've got a couple of lanes designated for them, free trash charge so the kids can do some bowling. And then you've got the standard stuff that we all love, you know, some food and prizes, 50-50, specials at the bar and what have you. Uh, so has your club, I mean, I, I, you and I have known each other for quite a long time. Sure. So you are a i and one of the fathers of the Booze Fighters Motorcycle Club. Is this something the club has done in the past, things like this?
5: Yeah, we do a bit of charity work throughout the year. I mean, you know, we donate to a bunch of different families at Christmas. Uh, everything we do, we try to keep the money local in our own community. Uh, it's not something that we look for recognition for. We just go about our business and, and try and help where we can throughout the year, you know. so So it is a regular thing for us. But this one really hits home because Kyle's uncle is actually a member of our club. You know, he's one of my club brothers, and we know the family very well. Uh, me personally, my family goes way back with Carl's family. Carl's grandfather and my grandfather and my uncle worked together uh, forever at Labatt. So, you know, this is, this is something that, that touches me and touches everybody in the community. I mean, everybody has everybody's been touched by cancer at some point, right?
1: No question. And that's the unfortunate reality that we deal with here. So if folks would like to attend or to find out more, what do you want them to do?
5: Okay, so you can go to Facebook and go to uh, Carl Murphy's Grab Your Balls for Cancer. Uh, There's a page there with all the information. Uh, I can give you the quick rundown. So we're going to start registering for bowling at 6 o'clock at Paradise Bowl. Uh, It's $10 to get into the event for the social, an extra $10 to bowl. Now, the bowling teams will be on a blind draw, so we don't get... uh, we don't get any pro bowlers in there cleaning up the pot. So the winning team, of course, will get cash and a lot of prizes. Um, and you can also come for the social end of it, too. I mean, uh, Paradise Bowl has a brand-new bar up there called Paddy Jack's Bar, and that'll be open all night. And we'll have, listen, 50-50 raffle prizes, giveaways, door prizes. Uh, we've got gift card trees. We've got all kinds of stuff to win. So it's really going to be a fun event. Uh, bring the kids, like you said. We've got a couple of lanes so they can go out and throw some balls around and have some fun. and uh, It's just going to be a real fun time for all ages and uh, raise some money for a family that really needs it.
1: Yeah, good on you in the club for doing it. Just a bit of a generic uh, question for you, Jody. Sure. I remember there was an issue some years back where, of course, you've got the... Organized crime groups that do indeed are members of motorcycle clubs, and you know the notables come to mind—the Hell's Angels and whatnot—and then there was talk that you won't be, you wouldn't be able to wear your colors, as they say, or you're mm-hmm. at a club or what have you, but. Tell people how to really evaluate what they see in people's back because not everyone wearing a black leather jacket with a motorcycle club badge on it is a bad guy. Some people are part of the Gold Wing Club, for instance, and or the Booze Fighters, which is a social club as much as anything else. So, you know, I think there's an automatic reaction when people see the colors. They think, "Uh uh-oh, steer clear, but that's not always the case.
5: No, that's not always the case. And and like you said, there's different clubs out there for everybody. And, uh, you know, even the big clubs, like you mentioned, that people think are, are, you know, heavily into organized crime, you might want to reevaluate that too. I mean, um, you know, I know in our club, uh, we've got rules and regulations, and a lot of the clubs. If you're if you're doing stuff that's unsavory, like you know, uh, if you're dealing drugs or whatever, then you're just going to get kicked out of the club, and that's it. Um, we're not really a social club; we're a traditional motorcycle club. Okay, sorry, yeah, that's okay. They, we you know we date back to 1946 out of California, but just because somebody is wearing a patch on their back, don't jump the gun and think they're think they're a criminal. I mean, criminals come in all types of different organizations. Uh, and, yes, there's some places we can't get in with our colors still to this day because of the stereotype, but you know what? We just don't bother to support those businesses. But we will be wearing our colors on Saturday night um, just because we're organizing the event, and uh, we'll be, as they say, working our balls off for Colin Murphy's Grab Your Balls for Cancer.
1: Good on you for doing this, and uh, don't think you're kidding anybody. You're not going around with that old mid-'80s uh, PWC jersey on.
5: right? <laughs> <laughs> patty that was a gem
1: it was a gem and like <laughs> I say if you happen to fall down in warm-ups you're lugging around about a 20 pound jersey
5: absolutely yeah good times patty
1: yeah good times man good to talk to you jody good luck with the event you take care you too bye bye
5: all
1: right uh, there you go so let's try to get back half hour uh, back on track here with the conversation so when we come back robert's here to talk homelessness and then we're going to
2: talk about the medical travel issues facing the folks up in lab west don't go away Join us for On Target, one hour in which Linda Swain examines topics that mean the most to you. On Target, weekday afternoons at 1 on your VOCM. This is Open Line on VOCM. Welcome
1: back to the show. Let's go. Line number three. Robert, you're on the
0: air. Yes, hello, Daddy.
1: Hello. How are you? I'm doing okay, thanks for asking. How about you?
6: Um, I heard you guys talking about the homeless situation here this morning. So, um, I think the way, like, Newfoundland and Labrador Housing is going about these things, they're putting, they're setting people up that struggle with drug addiction in a revolving door to keep them going in jobs. And I'm I'm not joking about this because I came from the West Coast, okay? And um, I didn't want to come out here in the first place because I am a recovered addict. Okay, and I'm looking to, like, I'm looking to stay away from places like that, okay? So if they put you in a place Just a second, Robert,
1: years, stay away from a place like what?
6: Like places like that, uh, that, that uh, struggle with drug addiction, and then they promote you to do drugs. So how, 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 how would you get away from that?
1: So that would how, be in like a, in a shelter setting or a boarding home or something like that. Is that what you're talking about?
6: That's what I'm talking about. And I've been out on the street for three days calling Labrador housing in this snowstorm. I got thrown out from the gathering place down there because I got into a, uh, a ruckus with somebody down there that um, I'm a recovered addict. And I don't want to be around that stuff. And I was lied to a person from Labrador housing just to put me out here and trap me out here because I have no income or anything. I'm an injured person. Okay. I can't work. So, like, all this stuff is going on, and then I'm being lied to, telling me I'm going to get put down to the Wiseman Center where I have my own room. I can get away from people like that then, see? Mm -hmm. Right? So I was lied to to come out here, telling me I'm going there. When I get out here and I call them for transportation when I'm at Munn University to go to the Wiseman Center, they send me right down in the depths of hell. Down there to that gathering place, that that, that there, that shouldn't even be open down there. Why is that? They they do help people. They do help people, yes, in a way. But when they're promoting drugs down there, how are they helping people? You tell me that.
1: Okay, just so I have, make sure I understand what you're saying. So, is there, I mean, who's promoting drugs? Other clients or patrons?
6: The gathering place is promoting it.
1: The gathering place, like people who were running and operating the gathering place, and promoting drug okay, use.
6: Okay, if you're, if you're, so you're not going to promote drug use if you're giving crack pipes and you're giving this and you're giving that and you're, you know, do you know what I mean? So, you get a person fresh that is homeless. Okay, they're putting people up in hotels. You tell Newfoundland Labrador, uh, uh, Newfoundland Labrador housing your situation for one. Okay. I'm a recovered addict. I can't be around people like that. So I'm fresh out of the bed from recovered from drugs, right? The only way I'm going to stay clean and fresh, okay, and keep going on a straight and narrow road to try to change my life is to stay away from people like that. So they do have places like, okay, single rooms, single this, whatever, right? But I couldn't get into one. It's almost like this person... From Labrador Housing, I asked her her name. She's hiding her name, but I got a lawyer and everything on it now, right? I'm trying to find out who this person is because I was lied to uh, to where I was going when I came out here.
1: Yeah, I'm not sure what to say about that, but that's no good. Uh, You can't be misleading people to track. Well,
6: that's what this lady done to me. She She misled me, okay, to tell me I was going to the Wiseman Center. I had no problem with that. I was on the bus coming. Right, I get out here after driving seven hours on the bus to DRL. I get out here, and I call, uh, I call the line back, and uh, she's like, uh, how can I help you, sir? I said, yes, I'm looking for transportation. I just traveled 12 hours, come across the island." and I said, to go to the Wiseman Center. She said, well, you're not going to no Wiseman Center. You're going right down to the gathering place. That was the first thing I told that lady when I got on the phone and I asked for help. Okay, so I don't know what went on there, but this same lady yesterday she kept me outside for the last three days. I was out in that blizzard snowstorm the other day, froze to death. I got a little bush coat on, pair of boots. I'm still like this because I refuse to go down in a place like that when they're putting people in hotels and everything else. Right?
1: Do you need uh-huh. some warm, Do you need some warm clothes? What's that? Do you need some warm clothes?
6: I, I need everything buddy. I like I got the clothes on my back. That's that's what I got Okay, I got nothing and Dude. I didn't ask nobody for nothing. I went down here to gathering place the other day Okay, I'm still waiting for him to review the tapes because he got this place down there called the boutique Right. I brought a sleeping bag with me in my bag across from the West Coast Okay, I was in the building down I almost feels like crying buddy. I was down here in the building with us Okay And uh, for some apparent reason, ironic reason, they had the same sleeping bag over 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 the over in the boutique over this. But you could reach up over the top and grab things, right? So um, the lady told me, she said, for some apparent reason, she said we got the same sleeping bag in there. They didn't have the same sleeping bag in there. They probably gave it away. But I told her, I said, you can call the place where I purchased this from. I'll give you the number and everything. He'll he'll print you the receipt. They still got my bag down there. They flew me out in that snowstorm the other day. Now, so this is what they're promoting down there, my buddy. Okay, they ain't promoting nothing good. Now, I can tell you that right now. Nothing. And I'm going to keep going with this, too, because I'm telling you right now, somebody's going to hear me, man. They're going to hear somebody when somebody's dead down there. Okay,
1: Robert, I can help get you some warm warm clothes. I can do yeah. that, right? There's, that's something I actually can do for you here today. And before yeah. I run out of time, and this is just a generic question, but you're a recovering addict. What did you do to recover? Did you well, go to I rehab, counseling?
6: I, I went back to work, man. That's my healing rate. I went back to work, but I can't do that now, man. I can't get that opportunity or anything here. I went back to work, I started working, and then I, I helped myself. Do you know what I mean? I kept Good. busy. I, I lived like a normal citizen again. And uh, everybody, like I got no problem with people with addiction or anything like that. But the thing is, okay, if you want to stay clean and straight and move farther ahead with your life, you have to stay away from people like that. You can say hello, goodbye, they're still your friends, but say, hey, boys. You know, I got nothing against you guys, but uh, I'm on this road, man. I, I want to keep going to recover. I want to keep on the straight and narrow of recovery,
1: man. Well, I hope you do, and I wish you well. And if you, if you want me to try to help organize some warm clothes, a hat, or whatever oh, I can order. What? Pardon? I,
6: I went down there several times to get clothes, man. There's people working down there. They pick and choose who they're giving the stuff to, man. They'll give people they don't know rags put on their back.
1: Robert? Let me know how you're doing and if anything works out with the Wiseman Center or you find yourself without even warm clothes or anything like that, if you let me know, I'll try to help.
6: I'm still in this situation right now, okay? I'm still in this situation right now waiting for somebody to call me from yesterday. So uh, I told the lady when I was on the phone with her, I asked her, I said, you know, I said, you guys have all kinds of people up in the hotel. I said, what's the difference between with me?
1: Robert, I have your number. So yeah. let me see what I can h- try to figure out this morning. And, uh, and if I get anything, any information, any p- clothing, any opportunity to go to the Wiseman Center, I will personally call you back. So I have your number, okay? And what I'm going to do is I'm going to put I'm, you on... I'm, not, I'm not in the
6: Wiseman Center. I'm homeless. Right, right, that's,
1: that's not what I said. I said if I can get you somewhere to go, I will. So I'm going to put you on hold. Give Fonce your, your last name so that I know exactly who I'm talking about yeah. if, you have, if I have your permission to do it.
6: Yeah, you got my permission. Okay, but is-
1: Robert, I do. I, I, I have to go, but I'm going to put you on hold. Give Fonce your last name. Yeah. Okay. There you are. You're on hold. Uh, let's take a break. When we come back, appreciate the patience of those in the queue. We're talking medical travel from Labrador West, and Kathy wants to talk about pedestrian safety and dangerous drivers. Don't go away.
2: Weekday mornings from 5:30 to 9, jumpstart your day with Jerry Lynn Mackey and Ben Murphy. Newsmakers, traffic, weather, and more during your V O C M Morning Show
0: is open line on VOCM.
1: Welcome back to the show. Let us go. Line number two say good morning to the NDP member for Lab West. That's Jordan Brown. Good morning Jordan. You're on the air.
7: Good morning Patty. Thanks for having me on.
1: Happy to have you on the program. Just a couple of things for my own clarification. In the news story I read this morning, it says, according to Brown, the program only covers the airfare for one trip and patients are left to carry the cost of food and accommodations when traveling to the island for healthcare. When I read MTAP itself, it talks about uh, $25 nightly accommodations benefit, $29 meal allowance. What am I missing?
7: So it's every subsequent trip. So your first trip is paid uh, to up to a percentage. Every subsequent trip, they slash it. 50%. Yeah. So this is where every subsequent trip is when that's kind of, you're, you're basically left to carry everything else on your own. Um, and, and that's the problem is the subsequent trips. And, well, the, the program itself, I have... Hundreds of issues with the program itself, but it, what really gets in the, in the crawl, I guess, of the, of the region is we don't travel for just one medical trip in, in this region. We make multiple trips a year. Almost everybody in this region does for medical reasons, and this is where the program really starts to fall apart is that there's no point to, to make a second claim. After you make your initial claim, is because everything you you don't you don't get nothing back. You're just you're just finding yourself in debt is what's happening. And I'll put this to you, Patty. What do you think it is to cost to fly from Lab West to St. John's uh, in a week's advance notice?
1: Uh, Three thousand
7: uh, dollars. Right now, it's one thousand five hundred dollars per person before tax. Right. Okay. So so you're looking at that. So that's. I went on a honeymoon to Ireland for less than that with my wife when we got married from St. John's, and that included a hotel. So this is the thing that we're we're, we're finding here is that the cost of airfare has gone ballooned through through the thing that now the MTAP program, even on your first claim, is not going to pay for your full airline ticket. Because it only pays up to the first $1,000 and then 50% after the first 1000 So this is where people in this region are realizing that they're actually carrying a lot of medical debt right now. We're almost Americans right now because of the amount of debt that people are carrying around here for medical travel.
1: Okay. So, I mean, if the province is going to approve it as cost coverage up front and a reimbursement, do you have an idea about the turnaround time for reimbursement?
7: Uh, right now, they say uh, they'll, they'll tell you 90 days, but people around here wait almost uh, four or five months before they get reimbursed from MTAP.
1: Okay. Which is a long time because I was just wondering whether or not it was inside the envelope of a credit card billing cycle. And apparently, it's, it's, not,
7: no. it's not even close. Okay. And so, right now, like, I'll, I'll, I'll tell you this. Again. So, right now, across the uh, border, our neighbors in uh, Fairmont, Quebec, um, the, the Quebec system is you, they, you go over there now and say so you're over to the clinic in Quebec and they say, oh, we need you to go out and see your, uh, your cardiologist. They hand you a signed voucher. You bring it to the uh, the airline that they have the contract with, and you're booked for the next flight out. That's how they do it over next door. And they and said, and and that's how they do it. They the, the government buys airline tickets in bulk for medical travel. That's how they do it next door. Here, um, right now, you got to go. You got to get a letter from, say, so say if I have to go see my cardiologist in St. John's, I got to get a letter from the cardiologist saying I have an appointment. Then I have to go and get the forms and everything like that, book my travel, book my hotel, go out. Then I have to get him to sign a piece of paper for me if he's available. And then I have to get a letter saying I showed up to the appointment, and then I have to come back, and I have to sit down and go through paperwork. And if I miss one thing on that piece of paper or anything like that, instant denial. They don't even call you. They just send you a letter saying your, your, your claim is denied. They don't even call you to say, oh, did you miss this signature, or oh, you missed this date. They just send you a letter saying denied, and then good luck appealing it.
1: How do we square this circle? Because I'm sure this is one of the hang-ups on behalf of the provincial government. Is, you know, after your travel for medical care, you have to prove that you attended your appointment, uh, and then you go through the process. You know, not to insinuate that there's going to be one or many or some that will take advantage of this and just use a government travel voucher simply to come to the island as opposed to go to a medical appointment, even though if you have one, most people don't want to miss them for the obvious reasons, for your overall health. So how do you suggest they deal with that particular topic? Because that's going to be absolutely one of the hangoffs, isn't it?
8: Well, that's the thing. our
7: neighbors next door is doing it. This is the, this is the part that, that blows my mind. Our neighbors next door are doing it right now for their northern residents. And here we are. Uh, they're treating us uh, like, you know, we're, they're, they're burdening us with medical debt. And here's the thing. It's only for one trip, Patty. Everything, every subsequent trip afterwards, you're on, you're on the hook for yourself. There's people in this region that have to go out monthly for treatments. For you know, for life-saving conditions, uh, like for life-saving treatments that they have for severe conditions here, and this is the fact that it is: is that after your first trip, then you're on the hook yourself. I have people call my office, Patty. They go to the Salvation Army to get their tickets. They go to the food bank because the food bank has a program that helps out with no travel. Almost all the money that's collected for the Christmas kettle up here, Patty, goes to medical travel mm-hmm. tickets for people. This is the, what is going on up here: is that the province is burdening people with medical debt. up in the the northern region and then they look at us and goes oh well you know lab west you know the the great money maker of the province you know uh three thousand miners with high salaries but you know how much it costs to live up here when you have to go and you know if you want to leave this region you have to pay fifteen thousand uh fifteen hundred dollars for a ticket to get here just to go see your cardiologist to make sure you know your ticker's working this is the problem we have here and i'll tell you another thing about it is so say you go, you have a have a surgery or procedure that's done out in the health science center. There's two appointments. You have your consultation to see if you need the surgery, and second, your actual surgery. People actually have to use their MTAP for the consultation appointment, and then pay full fare to go out and sit at St. John's for a month or so uh, for a surgery, and then pay and hold that debt on themselves afterwards because MTAP's is basically only good for one trip. So this is this is the thing that we're looking at is that they are burdening people with actual medical debt in this province, and it's unreal. That I that they they you know that they I don't they don't see it or they don't they don't have any solution to it and I know that they said oh in the media that oh we're reviewing MTAP oh, no one's called my office and said Jordan we know that you complain about this the most uh, what do you think we should do no one's called my CA who calls. MTAP almost every day on behalf of residents of this region. No one's called her and said, hey, what would you think would be a great thing? So if they're reviewing it, they're not doing a very good job of reviewing it because no one in this region has gotten uh, gotten a consultation with the uh, department about how to improve MTAP. And we're the ones probably one of the most group that use it, us, us uh, and Happy Valley Goose Bay. And this is ridiculous that this is still going on to this day that they think it's okay to burden people with medical debt.
1: Do you have an idea how many people in your uh, district uh, avail of the MTAP program annually?
7: Everybody. I can, I can confidently say almost everybody in this region has used MTAP at some point in time.
1: Yeah, I mean, there's, there's models we can mimic. I'm never really sure that if the money's going to be reimbursed, why the province wouldn't be willing to get out in front of it to spare people, whether it be adding to their line of credit and the consequent uh, impact of interest and or putting it on their credit card or having to have a raffle or a 50-50 or turning to a not-for-profit or a charitable organization for medical care. You know, at some point, it might even fall into the category under the Canada Health Act of extra billing. Oh, well, I, I,
7: I hope it does. I hope there's a lawyer out there somewhere that can prove that this is, would fall under the Canada Health Act because it will, it will alleviate my residents the people of Labrador West and the people of Happy Valley Goose Bay and other parts of Labrador that use this program because it is absolutely ridiculous, Patty, that today in this age that I have to pay to go see a doctor. And that's basically what it comes to is I'm taking on debt to go see a doctor.
1: Yeah. Uh, Last one, and this is on a different topic. Is there a difference between a resident of Labrador versus the island for any of the government supports that have been out in the recent past like the cost of living check, the $500 that people talk about?
7: No, uh, uh, we did not see anything special for anything for a Labrador residents. It was the cost of living checks were uh, the same, from my understanding, right across the uh, right across the province. There was no uh, deviation in that. And you look at the residents of Labrador, and that um, most of the programming and stuff like that, they try to make it a one size fits all approach, and usually it ends in disaster.
1: Appreciate the time this morning, Jordan. No worries. Take care. Take too. care. Bye bye. Uh, will I take Kathy here, or Fance? What do you think? Or take the break. Let's take a break. Kathy, appreciate your patience. You're next in the
2: queue to talk about pedestrian safety. Don't go away. Saturday morning, join us for the Irish Newfoundland Show. Send your request to irishnl at vocm.com or submit them online at vocm.com.
0: This is Open Line on VOCM.
2: Welcome
1: back to the show. Let's go. Line number one. Kathy, you're on the air.
8: Uh, Hi, Patty. I'm a first-time caller. Welcome to the show. Uh, Yeah, I just want to talk about an experience that I uh, had there uh, last week during the storm. I'm not quite over it yet because I was almost knocked off my feet. Um, I was coming from the village mall. Uh, I used the crosswalk there on Hamlin Road to get to the other side uh, towards Sobeys that way. And there was a bus, a metro bus, and he was doing his job. He was letting off passengers or taking them on, whatever. I'm a person with low vision, and I use my cane um, on sidewalks and uh, crosswalks. And uh, this uh, person who was stopped behind the the metro bus... uh, He pulled out behind the Metro bus and came flying down the road. And, uh, I was really taken off guard because, uh, well, I'm, you know, taking care of myself on the road, being careful and watching traffic. And, but this guy had no, you know, who pulls out behind a stop bus for one thing. I don't think it's allowed. It's not. Yeah. And, uh, I was really, uh, frightened and I had to put my hand up and wave at buddy to tell him to stop, to slow down. And unfortunately, well, I gave him the royal salute. (laughs) So I'm I'm still not over that a little bit. It's terrifying. And, uh, I know people are, got things on their mind and, uh, if they're lucky enough to be able to drive and, uh, you know, have the, uh, you know, the privilege to be behind the wheel. Um, They should take in consideration the people who don't drive or who are walking. And uh, I just want to voice my opinion on that. And it was a very scary situation. I feel that the, the bus driver may have seen what happened and maybe a few cab drivers who were parked on the parking lot. But, uh, I had to stand up for myself, you know, and I just thought that it was a pretty scary situation, Patty.
1: And of course. And I don't
8: know if there's more people out there like me, but I'm just voicing my opinion. And I'm trying to say to people who, like I say, have the privilege to drive to get behind the wheel with a calm head, you know, and, uh, and uh, watch out for people, you know.
1: I do know, and I—I I mean, we talk about pedestrian safety, and th- an interesting word you use there, and I think you're absolutely correct to use it. Is it's a privilege? Some people try to convince me that driving is a right. No, it's not. I mean, it's an absolute privilege. For starters, you have to be tested for your competency behind the wheel.
4: Mm-hmm. You
1: know, we can always talk about fees associated with it, but you know, it gets worse out there as the years go by. Maybe it's because there's more congestion of traffic than in years past, as the population of this region grows. It gets further complicated in the winter where people have limited uh, options for where they walk, so, uh, where they walk safely. But, mm-hmm. you know, I th- I think the whole concept here of, you know, pulling out around a bus, whether it be a metro bus or a school bus with their stop sign uh, dispatched and the lights uh, flashing, but people are still willing to pull around them. I think it just goes back to the very simple mindset of some people kind of lose track of their own, Uh, obligations as a motorist when they get behind the wheel, they're aggressive Mm -hmm. and reckless and drive too fast and they're in a big hurry because if you're driving around St. John's for instance you're getting nowhere in a hurry by going fast you're just not, I'll see you at the next red light that's just all that's to it I don't know what gets into people driving around, especially when the conditions are tricky like they are now during the winter months because if you're zipping Mm -hmm. around and dodging in and out of this lane and that lane, I'll see you at the next red light you're, no, you're not getting anywhere any faster than me. So let's say, for instance, you chop 15 seconds or 45 seconds off your travel time, and it results in maybe a ticket one day, maybe striking a pedestrian, a kid or an adult like yourself. So people just got to relax behind the wheel. It's n- madness out there.
8: Yeah, I, ju- I just wanted to, uh, yeah, just let you know and let your listeners know that that stuff can really, really happen. And uh, uh, it came very close to me that day. And uh, I just—that's all I gotta say. I just want to say, everybody stay safe. And if you got a car, and you're lucky enough to have one, and you know, then uh, be careful. You know, be careful.
1: Absolutely. I'm glad you're okay and uh, healthy enough to give us a call this morning, Kathy. Thank you. Okay. Thank you, Patty, for your time. Take good care.
0: All right. All right. Bye bye.
1: Yeah, and you know, when we talk about, say, for instance, snow clearing, sidewalk clearing. Saw a short clip of a video on social media today with how jam-packed the snow is in some of these parts. This fellow, uh, taping from his bedroom window, I assume, it took about four minutes to go 50 feet, which is how thick and dense and wet the snow is. So I suppose they're chipping away at it the best they can. But, you know, we can always talk about the priority, you know, whether it be for the motoring public and or pedestrians. But, you know, for me, as a member of the motoring public, I get stressed to the max with the pedestrians on the road. I know they've got very limited options for where they can walk. If the sidewalk's not cleared, I totally get it. So as a motorist, I think a hybrid focus or a real keen focus on enhancing safety for pedestrians is actually very good for the motorists as well. You know, limits or reduces or eliminates the possibility that you're going to run someone down. Uh, let's take another one on, two. Jeff, you're on the air. Good morning, Patty. How are you? Excellent. How are you doing? good first-time caller welcome Monday. to the show
9: thank you my name is uh, Jeff Garland I'm the manager at the local rink here in uh, Whipper in the Trinity Stadium cool um, we had a um, um, well the community had a rally here on uh, Sunday up at the local clinic um, It was a real good showing uh, about the closure of the 24-hour emergency services at the Whipper and clinic mm-hmm. um, and you know from our point we want to keep Keeping momentum going on this, um, from our point as association, um, most of our programming takes place now outside of the working hours of the clinic. So, you know, we start most of our program at 3 or 4 o'clock in the day, Saturdays, Sundays, uh, most of the nighttime. Um, we've had injuries um, on, on the ice before, you know, during hockey as it is a contact sport. And now, um, you know, we have kids traveling from all over the province coming here for a uh, Um, for minor hockey tournaments and for figure skating competitions and um, if we have someone injured on the ice um, we've got a long travel um, to get them um, some medical care where in the past you know the clinic was always there for us Um, and it it is becoming an issue for us um, going forward so you know i just wanted to just wanted to call and um and uh, make a point, and and hopefully we can get some more people to call in about this and and keep the momentum going.
1: Yeah, because, I mean, I think you can look across the gamut of daily activities in the area is that it might be an injury that takes place on the ice, which absolutely happens. And the uh, amount of people that would be treated by first responders, whether it be with collisions on the highway or byways, and where their their closest opportunity for emergency or trauma care would be, so yeah, you know or whether you just have your own emergency that happens as you 're sitting around the the kitchen table, so there's every little facet of life that leads into the need for an access to and a timely access to health care, so I get it look we 've been hearing from people. In Bonavista and in Whitburn, they're the two most notable. Even though this is a conversation that's absolutely province-wide, whether it be obstetrics diversions in Central or obstetrics diversions from Saint Anthony, or from Labrador down to Saint Anthony. So there's a lot of these that all speak to very similar overlaps with staffing shortages. You know, maybe there's there's some inkling out there that this is coming in a calculated fashion. Clinics will either close or be recategorized based on what the province thinks is where we need to have supports. But it's either that or staffing shortages are as real as they feel.
9: Yeah, and we we see the staffing shortages with doctors leaving um, from the region um, um, almost, you know, on a, seems like a monthly basis. But, I mean, again, with us, I mean, most of our programming um, is done in the winter months when, you know, when the roads are bad. I mean, you take, you know, Saturday past and then again today. Um, You know if we have a severe injury on the ice um, Or even around the rink, I mean like I said, we're 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 um, a good hours away um, for that individual. I myself have two small children um, a four-year-old three-year-old now, but back in September that first windstorm we had I had one of my my child fell and had a massive trauma to the face and I had to drive an hour away um, to St. John's in a massive windstorm uh, hydroplane with a child that it was, it was extremely, it was extremely scary. Um, I'll never forget it. But at least if the emergency service was open, we could have got him to Whitburn, ten fifteen minutes away, and got him stable. Um, and it would have, it would have helped, um, ex- extremely in in his situation,
10: right?
1: Yeah. Sometimes it's because first responders got there quickly, and you put in a dollop of luck when you suffer some sort of injury whether it be in the rink or otherwise and God knows I've suffered a few of those Uh, anything else you want to add this morning Jeff while we have you
9: no sir thank you very much for taking my call
1: I appreciate your time everybody take care bye-bye yeah there's every reason in the world to talk about when we might need first responders and close proximity access to emergency care trauma care and you add into that and sometimes this gets overlooked or far too often gets overlooked is those first responders you know, I think about the volunteer firefighters and what they see. You know, there are obviously pillars of the community, by and large, to want to be a volunteer firefighter, and there they are coming up on some of the most traumatic incidents that we can ever imagine. And then, of course, what we'll call the professional ambulance operators, the paramedics of both tiers, and just how precarious their jobs are and how many people are considering leaving or have already left add into it the disconnect or the mumbo-jumbo while we got private offerings and public offerings, different hours and obligations and ready-to-pay and on-call times. So we've got to figure that out. The province has been kicking around the paramedics issue for years. It's time to catch that ball and figure it out. Let's take a break. When
2: we come back, Al's out in Central. What does he want to talk about? We'll find out. Don't go away. Join us for On Target, one hour in which Linda Swain examines topics that mean the most to you. On Target, weekday afternoons at 1 on your VOCM.
0: This is Open Line on VOCM.
1: Welcome back to the show. Let's go. Line number one. Al, you're on the air. How are you doing, Patty? Doing okay. Al, Uh, you? Not too bad.
11: Patty, I'm looking for some information or somebody to give me a bit of help in which way I can turn. I purchased a heat pump from a company in Central. Uh Now, I haven't gotten any use out of this pump other than it's it's awesome air conditioning. I can't get no heat out of the stupid thing. I've been back to the company several times. They did come down twice and looked at it and said, well, you got your wood furnace in. I said, well, I I got to. i got to have heat. Well, we can't do nothing with it because we don't know what's wrong with it. And the last time they came, he told me, well, the problem is we don't know enough about these units to, to even work on them. Now, I paid almost $8,000 for this thing. Yikes. <laughs> and uh, I'm just not getting any heat. I won't even eat up my living room.
1: Yeah, so obviously there's something wrong with the coil. Um,
11: well, there's, I've had several people tell me it's, it's what they call the reverse valve. It switches it from hair conditioning to, over to heat. And if it's a bit of moisture or something in it, it won't work. Now, I don't know. I'm no expert on nothing. (laughs) But, like, I've tried everything. I've reached out to that same company there in St. John's, and they tell me they're not responsible for it because this guy got his own business. He don't work for them. Uh, Reached out to their office in Truro, Nova Scotia, and pretty much got the same thing, pretty much the same runaround. There's nothing anybody can do to help me. I've tried to get all to Better Business Bureau, uh... I was phoning St. John's for a, while, a long time, and then I found out they, they moved everything to Halifax for Atlantic Canada. Yeah, they have, yeah. And all I'm getting is a recording when I phoned there, and they gave you an email address. Well, I'm compute, completely computer illiterate. I don't know nothing about computers. I've tried to get on there and file a complaint. I just cannot get no head base with anything.
1: Better Business Bureau is, uh, I mean, I don't know. But uh, the formal, the place to uh, file a formal complaint about any business dealings in the province can be done with the provincial government, and ServiceNL is responsible for those. So I would go down that road. Also, you know, maybe just another couple of uh, the dealers in your area, just a telephone call to ask them if they can give you any advice, like whether it be coal air contracting or... Uh, Greenfoot, I, I know, operates out in your area. So, I mean, I'd just I, see if uh, I could get some advice from them as well.
11: Yes, I reached out to them, and the comment I'm getting back was, we don't want to be the, the middle man here.
1: Yeah, okay, and fair enough, because getting involved in that that yes. might be tricky. I'm going to give you a toll-free <laughs> number for ServiceNL where you can file a formal complaint there. I don't know if that's going to get you anywhere, but I documented, per- uh, period.
11: Yes, any help at all.
1: Okay, so this is the number. It's one eight seven seven. Okay.
11: 636.
1: Right. 68. Yep. 67.
11: Thank you very much. I will definitely try that
1: out. Let me know what happens, will you? I will, Penny. Okay, good luck, Al. Okay, thank you. You're welcome. All the best. Bye-bye. Yeah, I mean, boy. When you're doing something, a bit of business in good faith, and the equipment doesn't work, you know... I don't know how some people sleep at night. Let's go to line number three. Say good morning to the PC member for exploits. That's Playman 4C. Playman, you're on the air. Good
10: morning, Paddy. Morning
1: to you. Good
10: morning. Patty, my call this morning is uh, regarding the RFQ, uh, RFQ, actually, that was recently put out by government to uh, to for the uh, CF 415 water bomber. You know, that was issued on February 16th. Now, I brought this issue uh, forward a couple of times, and, and certainly I am happy to see that government has taken some effort, you know, to to put out an RFQ. My concern about it, Patty, is that, you know, it's taken this long to acknowledge, you know, to acknowledge this issue and a major forest fire last summer, you know, to make this happen. This bomber was damaged in 2018, uh, just considered not airworthy, and basically left to rot. You know, it shows that uh, five years later, you know, that Government dropped the ball on this you know and and it took uh, took a major forest fire for for something to happen and, and you know for you know to get this bomber up and running again uh you know your your extra costs now maybe you know for years are left lying like that so it's uh you know it's good to see it, but uh you know it's uh, it, it's been a long time for this to happen
1: sure, let me see if I can uh, drag some water bomber stuff out of my poor brain here, so we had a full complement fleet of four. And in 2018, this water bomber was scooping water and struck a rock or something, if I remember correctly. And because there had been water bomber damage in the past, I believe the insurance deductible was about $10 million or something like that. And so they've been trying to sell this bomber with no luck. But we're talking about this is 2023. If we need a complement of four, and then there's always the argument about where the water bomber should be. But if we need four, we only have three. We can't be waiting five years to replace a pretty important component because a forest fire might not just be nuisance; it might be risking life and limb. It could burn down communities. So I don't know what the holdup is here, but who wants to buy that damaged water bomber? Do you happen to know if they've had any success or any nibbles on trying to sell it?
10: I do, I don't know I don't know if they had any any success, Pund Patty, but now they're going to try to repair it, the one back in 20 2018. You know, what I mean, like you say, that's five years ago. Um, and it showed last year. You know, we had a major forest fire here in Central Newfoundland. You know, uh, towns on high alert. You know, evacuations. Uh, you know, at the hospitals here, that sort of stuff. And we needed a, we needed an, an extra water bomber last year. And uh, you know, with the dry conditions, and we all look at climate change and that sort of stuff. And now, when you when you look at uh, the, the heat and the hot weather, uh, you know, it shows that the uh, you know we need some extra extra air so air resources for for forest fires. You know. And, uh, you know, this RFQ was gone out for February 16th. Um, if the contract is awarded through the process, the, uh, the contract won't be awarded until the summer of 2023, which is this year, this year which certainly tells me that we won't have an extra bomber, water bomber for this year, and probably the one after.
1: Yeah. Now, uh, again, I never know what we're going to talk about, but now it's coming to my head that I think the full complement of water bombers was five at one point. And the fifth one was the one that got damaged, which made the fourth one the fourth one's damage saw that massive insurance deductible so you're telling me now that the r f q which i believe- re- means request for a quote for repair versus the r f p for you know starting up projects and or to try and sell this bomber, so they've given up on trying to sell it now it's all about repairing it
10: it's all about repairing We're just okay doing this RFP, RFQ, so um, you know, so we're we're not go- we're, we'll, we certainly won't see an extra extra water bomber this year for for services uh, to, uh, to fight forest fires here in Newfoundland, Labrador. Uh, and, and like I say, we had five, we're down to four. Uh, you know, so, and one out of commission. So, you know, uh, Patty, the seat is happening. Like I say, it takes a long time. It just shows inaction of government, Patty. You know, uh, we repeat it time after time, but it, it shows uh, you know reaction rather than pro action, Patty
1: yeah do you happen to know like there was if I remember correctly there a few years ago, there was big arguments about whether or not one should be permanently stationed in Labrador because a few summers ago there were some pretty tricky fires in Labrador. Do you happen to know that during fire season where these bombers are located
10: well right now I you, the bombers are on the east coast and central. I think there might be one in labrador I'd have to check and make sure on that for sure. But uh, you know, and and it could. We, we you know, you take the vast, uh, vast ge- geographic area we have here. You know, it's, uh, it's, uh, Labrador itself. You know, it's a, it's a, it's a huge area. You know, and a lot of, a lot of forest uh, area down that way. Same thing here in Central Newfoundland, and uh, and all across the west coast, and anywhere when it comes to that. I mean, say so grass fires. It don't take long. You know, especially in the uh, forest fire that we had here last year. Uh, most of that was brush and, you know, a lot of it that was started was uh, probably brush and, and, and foliage. And, and once uh, once that uh, started, Paddy, that just went like a dry carpet, basically.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, Labrador, I mean, I'm just pulling up a number here that I used to know off the top of my head, but just to give people an idea just how massive Labrador is. Uh, that, 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 uh, that, that, uh, sorry, I don't mean to be doing this, but i got no choice. Okay, so you could put the entirety of the United Kingdom in Labrador, and have room left over. Uh, The square kilometers of the United Kingdom, in full, is just over 242,000 square kilometers. The square kilometers of Labrador, just for context, is almost 300,000.
10: Massive numbers,
1: buddy. Pretty cool, right? I mean, that one used to be on top uh, of my uh, brain and tip my tongue, but I couldn't draw it this morning. Okay, so uh, the water bomber issue, you know, Obviously a problem and a lot of waiting around. If we weren't able to sell it within a year, it probably wasn't going to be a very attractive option for anybody in the water bomber business. And so far as where they're located, I don't know a water bomber pilot personally, but I do exchange uh, emails with this fellow quite frequently. I'll drop my notes to see if he can fill me in with the specifics on location and rotation or whatever else. Uh, Anything else you want to talk about this morning, Pleeman?
10: No, that's good, Patty. Yeah, you know, it's good to see it happening. But like I said, I don't think we're going to see extra lot of water bombers uh, this year. And it's uh, you know, it, it's sad to see them take the uh, take the take the initiative to say you know we'll just rotate the water bombers where we need them uh, at at the highest peak. You know, it's, it's it's ridiculous.
1: Appreciate the time. Thank you, Patty. Thanks, Fleeman. All the best. Bye bye. It's Fleeman He's the PC member for Exploits. But just imagine, Labrador is about fifty thousand square kilometers larger. Than the United Kingdom. Amazing. The square kilometers of Newfoundland, which is I think like the 10th or the 12th biggest island, largest island on the planet, it's about 111,000 square kilometers compared to 295-ish thousand square kilometers in Labrador. Wow. Let's go to line number one. Dorothy, you're on the air.
12: Hi, I'd like to uh, talk about the heating pumps. Okay. I had trouble with mine. Uh, I called someone to come in and check on it. When they came in, they checked. They said that uh, I wasn't getting no heat out. I was just, you know, like they said, that uh, my uh, part, part was gone, the fan motor was gone. They said, I'll order that for you. So he ordered for me, and it's three weeks now, and I never heard a word if they got it in or they haven't. Uh, that's my second heating pump now I'm having trouble with. But yeah, I mean, I pay almost $5,000 for
1: it. Yeah, and, you know, here we have the government promoting it, telling us we should do yeah, it. Yeah, I and don't te-
12: think it should be promoted anymore. I think it should be cancelled. should well. be put out there and not worth the money.
1: Well, especially, like, I mean, the people that I know that have them have had no problems. But that doesn't mean that you haven't had a problem, that Al hasn't had a problem. So if we're promoting through government monies and government campaigns something we better make sure that the people who are in the heat pump business here are reacting properly and in a timely fashion to their customers who have a problem. So you're here waiting three weeks. Have they given you any idea how much longer you're going to have to wait?
12: Uh, well, I never checked on it, but I'm I soon going to do it because I didn't even say your part was in and we can't fix it. I think you look at it now i got victory heat, you're okay, you know.
1: Yeah, but that's not
12: the—that's uh, not an answer. That's not an answer, no. That's
1: no, you an didn't answer. call them to say that you have electric heat. You called them to tell them that the heat pump they sold you isn't working.
12: Yeah, and uh, it's a pump solution. Maybe I should say that. Maybe I shouldn't say that. Uh, and well, hopefully they, they figure
1: it out asap for you.
12: Uh, I'm going to wait another couple of days if we don't hear from them. At least you couldn't say, well, your, your, your part is in and we'll get to fix it when we can. But sure, I could be here the whole, uh, the whole spring for I guess they fixed.
1: Well, I wouldn't hesitate calling them. I'd be at them every day.
12: <laughs> yeah. I mean, three, uh, Like they should have parts available for this kind of stuff. You know, stuff that gives out on them and things like that, you know? Yeah. yeah. I agree. Uh, so I don't think they're worth the money, for one thing. They're not worth what I paid for it. You know, $5,000, I mean, I'm here on my own, you know. and My husband passed away, so I'm on my own and that, you know. So I think they should, uh, you know, smarten up, I think.
1: I think you're right. Dorothy, yeah. when you say goodbye and hang up with me, pick the receiver back up and call them.
12: Okay, I will do that. Why not?
1: I mean, they owe you an answer.
12: Okay. Well, thanks very much for talking to me.
1: Anytime, Dorothy. Let me know how, it make, how you make out.
12: Yes, so will. i try to okay. get back to you. Obviously. Thank you. Take
1: good care. Yeah, bye-bye. All right, bye-bye. Bye. Uh, let's take a break. Heather is there to talk about some issues she's had with a prepaid credit card. Okay,
2: don't go away. Weekday mornings from 5.30 to 9. Jumpstart your day with Jerry Lynn Mackey and Ben Murphy. Newsmakers, traffic, weather, and more during your VOCM morning show.
0: This is Open Line on VOCM.
2: Welcome back to the show.
1: Before we get to credit cards, let's go to line number three. Say good morning to Dr. Todd Young out of Main Street Medical in Springdale. Dr. Young, you're on the air. Todd,
13: oh, hi. Good morning, Patty. How are you?
1: Very well. Thank you. How about yourself? Oh, not too bad, thanks. Pressing on. It feels uh, like that's all we can yeah. do, boy, isn't it? Uh, yeah. Before we get into the topic of your choosing, this is based on a conversation I had with Minister Tom Osborne, of course, Minister of Health Community Services. It's about a couple of weeks ago now. It's about yeah. the government going to the market with an RFP for virtual care. My question to him, and I'm not sure I fully understood his answer, is, why do we need an RFP? If I'm a doctor, he or she, anywhere in this province, why can't they simply offer as a complimentary service some virtual care out of my clinic? Do you know why we're going down the RFP road?
13: So, you're right. I mean, I think your vision is the same as mine. I think every physician, ideally, would be having a hybrid model where virtual care is a part of their services that they offer. Uh, I think that's in the best interest of patients. Uh, the RFP came about in that, uh, you know, I think there's a lot of private companies, certainly across the country, that have been lobbying uh, different uh, governments to uh, to look at uh, virtual care. Uh, we're probably no different than than the other ones. Uh, so they did put it together as an RFP, and I think actually the RFP that they put out there was uh, addressed two main issues: emergency room closures and primary care. Uh, I did put a bid in on the r f p Unfortunately, we were not successful in the in the rounds that went through uh, which which is fine uh but uh but i from what I gather, in the next couple of weeks, we should hear who the successful bidder is.
1: yeah, I just don't really understand it like I understood why we went to the marketplace for what ended up being a far too expensive operation with phone med, but if i 'm a doctor. In my clinic, wherever, in Springdale or in St. John's or in St. Anthony, and I think that, well, I have my mind wrapped around virtual care. I'm willing to train up and invest in whatever is required to offer it. Why can't I just do it? And on top of that, the further frustration, and maybe this is why it's less than appetizing, is because all of a sudden there remains a cap on the number of visits per day, which I just don't get. Do you understand the rationale behind the cap?
13: Absolutely not, and it it's so frustrating. I'll just go back to the RFP. So fomed they did make it through to the next round. So it'll be interesting to see if they get the RFP or not. Uh, as regards to the cap, I mean, every uh, this is what we're seeing, and this is just sort of a reality check uh, when it comes to patients and, and the, the challenges that they're facing across the province. Yesterday in Central alone, there were five sites that were on ER diversion, outside of central I mean Whitburn was closed uh, Bonavista was closed Uh, you know patients again are suffering having to travel longer distances to get the care that they deserve and need Um, in the meantime uh, so with Medicuro in particular I mean we're getting the demand is just phenomenal uh, for virtual Uh, we've hired three more doctors just in the past two or three weeks uh, but yet the cap is the barrier and, uh, and, and and so we're having to still say to people every single day, I'm sorry, but, you know, we can't, uh, we, we can't uh, take care of you. Your next appointment is, say, whatever, two weeks from now. But, uh, you know, so w- we're being challenged with how, uh, how we are able to, to help people, yet, yet we have the resources to do it.
1: Okay. Now, this is maybe going all the way back to the beginning, but I still think it's important. You know, virtual care, obviously the college does not recognize it. If you just do virtual care, it doesn't qualify for licensing. And we heard that from the doctor in Massachusetts who was talking about going to Fogo Island. But I think it's still so new that people don't know whether or not it suits their needs. So can you help us understand What types of issues can we dealt with virtually? Because people get used to what they're used to. They like to be able to sit in the doctor's office, see the white coat and the credentials on the wall, see them face-to-face, have the conversation. And they don't know if virtual care is going to be satisfactory for them. So I know a lot of people in that predicament. Many of let's say, my older friends, they don't think it's for them. Tell us what we can accomplish with virtual care.
13: So... I mean, we've we accomplished a lot through virtual care, but, I mean, I think that, you know, it's going to be based on the patient's needs as well. So, for example, if, if you have a patient in see and Verd is on diversion and it's uh, an hour and a half to Springdale or two hours or three hours to Grand Falls, uh, and your, you know, your needs are quite simple, meaning, you know, uh, it, well, it could be any, anything, I guess, that's not emergent, uh, you know, uh, why would you drive three hours to get care or six hours return trip if you uh, can go in and get, have a virtual appointment? So when it comes to episodic illness, when it comes to maintenance uh, of chronic diseases, particularly diabetes, we're doing a lot of diabetes care, uh, you know, all those things. And these are for orphan patients, of course. So, yes, the ideal is that we would all be attached to a physician or a nurse practitioner, and we would all then be able to have access to in-office care. That is the, you know, I, I do think that that is the, the, uh, the, the goal uh, or what we would like. In the meantime, virtual care is helping fill the gaps for the 135,000-plus people who do not have a regular provider. So when it comes to, I mean, what studies show is that 90% of what can be seen in an, in, in an office uh, can be taken care of virtually, and that's, those are studies that have been done for years.
1: Do, like So, for instance, if I want to reach out to any virtual care offering, Medicuro or others, to see whether or not it works for me, does that potential first consultation dip into your daily cap? Yes. Yeah. So, of course, it yeah. becomes less yeah. an attractive option.
13: Yeah. So what I find myself doing, and I mean, I, and this would be, I guess it's a, a challenge in that, you know, I, I find myself having to do more care for free so you know patients in springdale we're short staff there as well uh you know we do have medicuro we have a number of physicians that are taking taking care of things uh for for patients uh, across the province but i mean i i'd probably do 20 to 25 visits a day for zero and and you know that's not that just that just shows the fact that the demand exceeds the capacity that we're uh, being afforded by government, and uh, I think it's just ridiculous and unacceptable.
1: Yeah, okay. So, I mean, and I asked the minister about it. I'm not sure anyone's really offered me any sensible uh, uh, rationale as to why there's a cap on those visits or why there's a cap on cataract surgeries or anything else. You would imagine that doctors, based on their oath, would want to do as much as they can for their patients as quick as they can. So, when we're handcuffing or hamstringing them, I just really can't wrap my mind around it.
13: No. But maybe the Atlantic Premier's meeting will help.
1: What do you make of that? That was my next question, to be honest (laughs) with you. Because, I mean, I've talked about this forever and a day, is national standards and the paper warfare and the time, the onerous uh, work that goes into even going on a locum, let alone spending my summer in Springdale or Fogo Island or wherever as a doctor that's set up shop in Halifax. So what do you make of this approach?
13: So other than photo ops, uh, you know, I I do think uh, in the short term, it will make no difference when it comes to places such as Springdale or other rural communities. Uh, you know, I, I do think that national licensure is where it's going. I mean, that it just makes more sense. Uh, but having said that, you know, when it comes to virtual care, so even if we had a, a physician in PEI, New Brunswick or Nova Scotia, that signed on to this uh, Atlantic um, uh, registration, they would still not be able to see a patient in Newfoundland. If they were in Nova Scotia, they would still not be able to see a patient in Newfoundland and bill MCP because the MCP has a, uh, a rule that you have to be physically in the province in order to bill for virtual care. So it will make no difference when it comes to virtual care. So that was the part that was a little uh, disappointing for me.
1: Yeah. Is that manageable to make that shift? Because if we're going to see more and more virtual care offerings in the country, then for differences like the physician's registry, if it's going to work the way that people are telling us healthcare care is going to be delivered in the future, then it has yeah. to be you know, billing options the same with uh, mo- mobility options. Absolutely. Yep. Yep. Yeah, I mean, so for example, a
13: patient can see someone now through, um, through you know some of the other online clinics uh, such as Maple, right? But uh, a physician cannot, unless they're physically in the province, uh, the, the patient will have to pay out of pocket. So, and that's what we're trying to avoid, and and that's you know the philosophy that I have with our virtual clinic is, you know, we want to provide timely, comprehensive. Uh, care to uh, patients we have a collaborative clinic now we've just hired a pedi or just uh, recruited a pediatrician as well we have counseling so it's a it's fully comprehensive care which is the model which is the goal of I think of all government uh, strategies is to to have these collaborative type uh, models Uh, but yet the barriers need to come down if we if I want to be able to service the people of newfoundland and labrador to the best of my ability but those barriers uh you know really are just um a challenge and so frustrating
1: they're counterintuitive yeah absolutely uh, trying to make positive change all the while putting up roadblocks is really strange i uh, appreciate the time dr young last comment goes to you
13: uh, no i think uh, thanks for your time and uh patients need to speak up i mean uh, just uh, Whitburn yesterday. I mean, I, I, it just—I see those patients, as those people there are so frustrated, and you know, having to travel long distances to, to get care or longer distances. But you know, like I, I used the example of the sea, just because we see a lot of patients from the Beaver Peninsula in Springdale. But you know, the other topic that we can talk about at some other point is, you know, the financial—the financial, uh, the financial uh, burden that. Uh, having an an er closed on patients that are having to travel to other sites that should be addressed as well i mean medical transportation should be really addressing some of that there should be some compensation for those patients having to uh, uh to travel longer distances but we can leave that for another day
1: we can i'll just put this out there food for thought for the listener and then, you know, I've been trying to talk about the ambulance services, land and uh, ground, pardon me, air and ground. And so the story coming out of Bonavista, for instance, they fought for a dialysis unit, got it, now it's been closing all the time, they're forced to go to Clarenville, and what, how are they getting there? In an ambulance. And we're still having red alerts province-wide day after day and lack of service in some communities. I'll just pepper that in the listeners' minds for during the news break. Appreciate the time, Dr. Okay. Young. Stay in touch. Take care. Bye yeah. too. Bye-bye. It's Dr. Todd Young. Medicuro and Main Street Medical out in Springdale. Let's take a break.
2: Appreciate the patience of Rob and Heather. They're both up after this newscast. Don't go away. Saturday morning, join us for the Irish Newfoundland Show. Send your request to irishnl at vocm.com or submit them online at vocm.com.
0: This is Open Line on VOCM.
1: Welcome back to the show. Let's go. Line number two. Heather, you're on the air
0: um me yep, number you. 2 yes ma'am
14: oh hi thank you patty sorry i missed that um, uh yes i calling about this situation you know we're we're being told by so many agencies government agencies banks canada post everybody to be careful of your your um your personal information okay so anyway i wanted to buy something online and i thought I don't want to compromise my credit card and I bought from Canada Post a prepaid visa card. Anyway, um, when I did try to, to do this, on, to purchase something online, um, the card was rejected. And then you read on the back that you have to register the card online. Okay, so I registered the card online and they want everything. They asked for everything. Your maiden name, your I'm sorry, your mother's maiden name, your date of birth, et cetera, et cetera. But none of it was asterisk as necessary, except your name. All right. So I put my name in and and the address, of course. And by default, for some reason, the mailing address is Canada Post. That's what's in on the form. So I called them about that, and they said, well, um, yeah, take that out and put your own mailing address in. And I said, and so then they're asking for the billing address. So I I, I don't have a bill. I paid for my card. He said, well you got to put in your same the same address, your mailing address and the billing address are the same. So I said, okay. So hit submit for to register the card. No, they want mandatory. They want your birth date, your date of birth, mandatory. So I made up something because that's what a lot of us do when we don't see the point of anybody needing or asking for a date of birth. Okay. Register no. Now they want my ID number. So I called about it, what's an ID number? Do you have a driver's license? Yes. Well, put your driver's license number in. Now. Uh, this is it's it's really bad. When you when you put in on this registration form for this paid-in cash for prepaid card from Canada Post Visa, um, you put it. You, 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 They have, they have your money. And when you put in on this form, which is neither Canada Post nor Visa, um, the uh, the drop down. For your address, you know, the drop-down menu for the, all the provinces, our province is spelt two words, new, and the second word is found land. Yeah. Left. yeah. So, um, your, so your antenna are going off, right? This place that's asking me for all of this information is not a legitimate place. And I've called everywhere. I can't get my money back. I can't purchase online. Canada Post has nothing to do with it. They've told me from three different directions. Visa has nothing to do with it. They've told me from two different directions. The 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 bank that is actually um, doing this, that has entered into an agreement with Canada Post and Visa, is something called People's Trust. And when you do call them and ask them, are um, the credit card. Sorry, they, if you've got a problem with the card, you call the service number. And when you call, it says Canada Post uh, Client Services. So anyway, I asked them, are they Canada Post? And they said, this is Canada Post Client Services. I said, but they actually work for Canada Post? No, no, we are an offshore branch of Canada Post. How, like, what do I do? Where do I go? As much as they say protect your identity, when you come up against something that you think is fraud, there's no reason they need my mother's maiden name. No, they don't. My, my date of birth, my um, um, driver's license number. They don't need any of this, but they have my money, and I can't do anything about it.
1: Yeah. Well, I mean, those types of questions, you know full well that it is completely illegitimate. When they ask you for some of the very common questions for uh, some of the security that you have on your systems, like what was your pet's, your first pet's name? What was your mother's maiden name? You know, what was your first... Uh, your favorite memory of christmasers these are questions that the people ask us to ensure we are who we say we are when we go to access our accounts so that's always a red flag that nobody ever needs to know your mother's maiden name for any of these types of things ever 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 they don't need your driver's license none of that lines up with a pre credit card or most everything that we go to buy online there's fundamentals that make sense and if something doesn't make sense you know full well you're on the wrong side and Barking up the wrong tree. I'm on
14: the wrong side. So where do I go, Patty? They have $300 of my money that I paid in order to ensure that I'm not getting scammed when I go to use a credit card. Now, what do I do? Canada Post wipes his hands clean. It's nothing to do with us. They say, here's your receipt, non-refundable. Visa says it's nothing to do with us. This has to do with the bank that that we have a contract with, under license, called People's Trust, the so-called offshore Canada Post Client Services. The other thing was, the other thing they told me was that this is a requirement by Revenue Canada that I put this information in. I mean, this is not People's Trust. I don't care. People's Trust cannot be a legitimate place. Although, uh, when I called, oh, I don't know who. Anyway, they are a registered financial institution in Canada and has to fall under Canadian laws. So nowhere. I, I, I'm not getting any help anywhere. I don't know where else to go. I, it's, it's, I don't know.
1: There's The unfortunate reality is I don't think there's much you can do. I mean, recovering those types of losses seems Boy. like that is it's a pipe dream for many. Probably the best thing to do is for all these types of scams is to uh, let people in law enforcement know about it, in particular the RCMP. So file a complaint there because then they'll have a file open and then they'll be able to potentially, and we hear these warnings coming from different uh, uh, agencies all the time, is beware of this, beware of that. So until they're made aware of it, then maybe the rest of the general public who might fall prey to the same scammer and separate it of $300, we might not get these warnings widespread across the country or around the province. So I would do that.
14: what it seems like is the scammer is Canada Post. They're the ones that sold it to me. Yeah. Canada Post. So the credit card is here. It's got Canada Post logo on it. I bought it at Canada Post office.
1: Yeah, they they find themselves in a real pickle there. There's got to be a place for formal complaints at Canada Post as opposed to just calling someone out a toll-free number, isn't there?
14: Oh, uh, yes, yes. Then there's an ombudsman. And Yes, and that was the
1: next one I was going with.
14: It's not in the list, man. This kind of a situation is not covered by them i've called everywhere i've called agencies i, I just i don't know where to go i'm and not sure I'm either I stymied and that is canada post is a, is a federal you know agency and should stand by the product that it sells but it says quite clearly we have nothing to do with it
1: yeah but they're they're looking for some wiggle room that should not be available to them they do have something to do with it uh, yep. I'm going to connect with the Ombudsman's office at Canada Post to see if they blow me off or they give me a little bit more information. Do you, uh, you use email, obviously, Heather.
14: I do, and in, when you do call, you can tell it, this is a, what's called a single-load prepaid card, meaning I can't go put more money on this. Once I use up that $300, that's it. Yeah. So they don't need my information at all. I'm not looking for credit. I'm looking to spend the money I already,
1: you know. I understand the predicament that you find yourself in. I'm going to do that much after the show this morning, see if they can give me any real defense as to how they don't have something to do with, which they absolutely do, given how you describe the situation. So if you want to send me an email with just a little bit more uh, of the detail of what we spoke about, then so I can have it front of mine and in front of my eyeballs when I contact the ombudsman.
14: Thank you. We'll do. Appreciate thanks. this, Heather. Thank you very much.
1: Thank take, you. Take care. Bye bye. Okay. Bye. Uh, I'm going to take Rob here for the break. Line two or uh, line one. Rob, you're on the air. Good morning, Patty. Morning I'm to not you. I
15: can ask you how you are because I know you're already all good.
1: I'm doing fine, thanks.
15: <laughs> um, no, I just wanted to bring up a little bit about uh, Kathy there calling this morning about the pedestrians and stuff like that. Yep. And I used to live right up by the village wall there, and yeah, it's it's congested and everything like that, and people just don't, they're not considerate at all. But now I moved out to the, the shore here out in CBS, and when I see an oncoming, and, and people are respectful out here, they're, they're walking into oncoming traffic, and I will sit there and I will stop because I see an oncoming car, and I will wait for another car to pass before I give them a full berth. But I see it all the time where people just, you know, almost brush their their mirrors off people. And it's disgusting.
1: It's unnecessary. I mean, the motoring public has to be very aware of their surroundings, and I would suggest most importantly regarding pedestrians and pedestrian safety. And, again, you're going nowhere in a hurry on Topsail Road. So there's no reason to be brushing your side view mirror off a pedestrian or coming close to doing exactly that. So, yeah, I, I mean, I see it all the time. And then the one I saw just this morning was the fellow who was in front of me on McDonald's Drive. We were both turning right to go up uh, Torbay Road. I saw the pedestrian quite clearly. Uh, so did that person, I would assume. And they absolutely drenched them with, from the puddle that they drove through. So yeah, these types of things, yeah. people know better, but they just do it. I don't know why.
15: You know, and like I said, out in the shore here, we don't have sidewalks and stuff like that. People are walking along the side of the road, and this time of year, you know, like the the, the snow drifts are there and stuff like that. They, they don't have a whole lot of room. And um, I, like I said, I, I sit there, and I will stop, wait for an oncoming car to go by so I can give them a whole berth of a road just to let them know that they're, you know, I'm not... Being aggressive and, and driving by them I'm going to clip them with my uh, mirror
1: yeah well everyone's just got to do the best we can during especially the winter months where there's, the roads are going to be more narrow than we're used to so you're in those uh, four lane roads there's not a full complement to four lanes so everyone just has to play their role to get where we're going unscathed
15: yes well that's the whole thing like the, these people are out for a nice walk they want to enjoy themselves and do their thing, and us as motorists, if we're driving along, well, we're, we're in a closed vehicle. We're not exposed to the elements or anything like that, so just take your time. What what the heck?
1: Absolutely right. I mean, you're going to get where you're going. Might as well get there without knocking someone down.
15: Yeah, no, exactly right, and I'd like to just throw in a, a thing there with Dr. Young there, sure, with the, with the virtual uh, stuff there, because I'm not computer i don't have a computer i don't do this stuff okay this stuff is not going to work for me this virtual you know being online and stuff like that that's just not going to work for me
1: it's not going to work for everyone, and it's not going to work for every ailment. The uh, The thing about virtual care that I think can help is that it is absolutely suitable for some. So those some that can indeed be uh, helped by virtual care, that spares them driving to a clinic. That spares them all the costs associated and the time associated with going to a formal clinic, the bricks and mortar that we're all used to. So if it doesn't work for you, I totally get it. For some of the issues that I might be dealing with, maybe it works for me. For someone listening in a part of the province where their closest access is a two-hour drive, maybe it works for them. So, yeah, it's absolutely not the be-all and end-all. It's not the final solution. But let's say, for instance, we take 40 patients a day that, as opposed to having to drive somewhere right from their own kitchen table, got whatever they needed from a virtual care offering, that's probably helping the system. Do you think? Oh, no,
15: no doubt. No doubt it is helping. But I'm just saying that because we've got the oldest, aged people here in this province, and I would say 75% of them don't have access to a computer.
1: I don't know what the percentage would be, and some of that kind of depends where you live too. You know, for instance, most most every senior in my sphere. They absolutely do use the computer because I get emails from them all the time. Uh, but you're right. If it doesn't work for all, it's that's that's an absolute fact, and it's indisputable. If it works for some, I think that just kind of helps ease the burden on individuals, ease the burdens on the bricks-and-mortar system. All the while, we can't just pretend that you know virtual care has solved everybody's worries. Time to go home. Nothing to see here, folks, because that's not fair or accurate. You're right.
15: Yeah. So, uh, no, I just, I just wanted to throw that out there. But thanks for, uh, thanks for your time, Patty, and you have a great day.
1: Same to you. Thanks. Bye, Rob. Thanks.
2: All right, let's get that break in. Don't go away. Join us for On Target, one hour in which Linda Swain examines topics that mean the most to you. On Target, weekday afternoons at 1 on your VOCM.
0: This is Open Line on VOCM.
1: Welcome back to the program. Uh, just very quickly, for, I'm sorry, what was the lady's name who called about the prepaid card, spots? You want to say that to me one more time? She just called. Anyway, so this is the concern with the prepaid credit card, and I am going to follow up when she sends me an email. Uh, Heather. So, Heather, if you're still listening, in addition to lodging formal complaints so that files could be open and widespread, you know, warnings can be issued. The Financial Consumer Agency of Canada also deals with the types of prepaid cards, fees, checking your balance, using it, registering, reviewing problems with prepaid cards. So if you're listening, Heather, have a Google up or send me that email and I will send you the link for the Financial Consumer Agency of Canada to see if they can indeed be of any assistance to you. Let us go. Line number three. Tom, you're on the air. Good
16: morning, Patty. Morning
1: to you. Uh, a
16: couple of things, just a couple of
1: quick comments.
16: We had a lady on yesterday whose son was in, in prison, and she had uh, she had actually, I guess, not having them lit she asked and not to live with them because of his different challenges. And when I think of the homeless situations a lot of times, I know a lot of people are, are those people, people who have addictions or have significant challenges, and their parents have no choice but to kick them out to protect the other family members.
1: Absolutely. Like, I think if I remember correctly, she described she had a grandchild in the home, and just for the safety of her and her husband and the grandchild, just didn't think that it was uh, wise to have this particular fellow living with them any further. You know, it's part of the tough love. I don't think many parents are itching to kick people out of the house, but it comes to a point. And so it's those stories are brutal to hear, like many other stories we hear that are quite different, uh, difficult. But uh, that that conversation is even bigger than that one incident, and you know the concept of tough love. But yeah, anyway, I felt for.
16: Yeah, and when I think of all these communities needing additional housing, in the province needing additional housing, I I, I wonder if some of those needs could be met by people, uh, you know, doing things with their homes, like. You know if there's only two people left in the house putting an apartment in and that kind of thing I overheard two different people one gentleman saying he was converting his garage he was putting a loft there that he could rent out this wasn't within the city but and then another gentleman saying that he was he was actually renovating his basement so that he could rent it out but of course the type of tenant that that lady would describe is not the type of tenant someone wants living unfortunately nope. with them and that's what and that's where these emergency centers and stuff like that come and come in and, and places especially that can be supportive to people with mental health or, or significant uh,
1: addiction challenges. Yeah, uh, and just a, a quick comment on housing. The stories that I read about how many people are, are living in a home with multi, multi-generations represented in the home. So nan, their children, their grandchildren, all living under one roof for longer than ever before, so you know, getting up in age is becoming more and more common. It was the exact opposite a couple of decades ago, but we seem to be reverting. Some of that is about access and availability, and a lot of it's about cost.
16: Yeah, and I mean, kind of ironically, in 1955, the average Newfoundland house was about 800 to 850 square feet. Now it's like 2,500 square feet. There was more people living in it back then. And if you go back enough generations, what you're talking about actually was much more common where you had multi-generations living Oh, sure. Together. The
1: pendulum has swung, though. It used to be really common, then it wasn't common at all. Emptiness yeah. just happened much earlier in life, and now we're going back the other way.
16: Well, and what you're what you're witnessing is just the the unsustainable situation or society that we allowed to happen, and, and a lot of it was financed by uh, non-renewable resource revenue, and now that uh, you know, we've created this big monster of, of of a quality of life or standard of living that's not sustainable now all of a sudden i guess the uh elastic band is starting to rebound and pulling everybody i guess back down to reality you know unfortunately
1: yeah and you know it's it's also interesting how an older generation might see the younger generation as maybe lazy or uh don't have the same drive and determination and that kind of things but what was once really quite affordable for the vast majority is no longer that way. It, it's simply not. Whether we talk about you know, a university education, whether we talk about the ability to buy our first home, you know, you could have a couple of people working in middle-class jobs and no problem to afford their first home. That, the situation today, not so much. The cost to go to university uh, four decades ago and what you got for it versus today is nowhere even in the same ballpark, maybe not even in the same universe. So what was once attainable is no longer such. So there's lots of complexities involved in that. Oh, I just looked at the clock uh, there, Tom. Can I put you on hold for the news so we don't miss it by uh, too wide a margin and come back? Absolutely. Okay, let's do that. So we'll take a break, come back to town. I'm not sure what his topic du jour is, but we'll find out. Then we're going to talk uh, with an, informant, uh, pardon me, an enforcement officer with NL Fish and Wildlife. I believe that's who this gentleman is. And anyway, we'll find out after this. Don't go away.
2: Weekday mornings from 5.30 to 9. Jumpstart your day with Jerry Lynn Mackey and Ben Murphy. Newsmakers, traffic, weather, and more during your VOCM morning show. This is
0: Open Line on VOCM.
1: Welcome back to the show. Let's rejoin Tom on three. Tom, you're back on the air. Thank you, Patty. No problem, Gordy. What's your topic du jour?
16: (laughs) The topic du jour today is uh, trying to draw a parallel between the speed at which uh, NLESD slash Department of Education, whatever form they are right now, uh, divorced Gladneys uh, for obviously very important reasons. And did it on Friday, you know, basically very quick and then worked diligently over the weekend and probably worked diligently for like two weeks straight trying to um, find, provide the services. And, and the consequences to Gladneys and the owner and whatever else was obviously very, very abrupt and very, very, uh, I mean, you know, quick, like incredibly fast. And I just want to reflect on Mayor Whalen was on from Whit- Whitburn yesterday, and she was frustrated, understandably frustrated, in talking about the fact that, you know, Confederation Building is full of employees, and there's lots of buildings full of employees. And, and, it, and it, we're taxed to death, obviously, and we're borrowing money to finance all those employees and the amount we spend and the lack of accountability. So, so you know, Gladney's obviously fooled up really badly. Who knows the details? Maybe we'll find out eventually. And their world ended. But if you look at the fact that, you know, we have Muskrat Falls, we have our terrible financial situation, we have the broken healthcare system. I mean, there are managers and people with power, right from the you know, the highest levels down to middle management, who yeah. all have contributed to that. And and it seems like no matter what they do, the bridge in is another really good example or, or Mun situation. You know, basically having all this management, paying them ridiculous salaries while their buildings fall down around them. It's, it just seems like we can act really quickly when it involves maybe an entity that's outside, which which we should, because we have to protect our children. But meanwhile, all those people who I've worked, you know, in a lot of cases, we educate them, we support them, and then they retire at a fairly young age. And where's their accountability? I just, you know, I just, I just, I don't know how I, we want to blame the 40 politicians that we elect Um, when in reality, obviously, they do set the tone a little bit. But I can only imagine the frustration when you try to do anything quickly when you have a bureaucracy that moves at a snail's pace.
1: And you don't get to speak to the people who really hold the reins.
16: No, you don't. And, And you think, like, we're complaining about the doctors and the nurses, but we paid a lot of people a lot of money to maintain those relationships, to recruit, to manage, to plan. I mean, Senior senior bureaucrats down to again down the middle managers down to people whose job was to recruit like you know were all those people working as diligently as we were paying them to I mean like we pay out a lot of money every year to people to manage things like bridges and healthcare and education and I just I just think everybody needs to realize that the problem in Newfoundland and Labrador is is very very widespread and and when we hear whether it's Darren King saying, you know, build, you know, build the GBSs or the FPSOs or the topsides here, we have that. Like we have to ask ourselves as we look in the mirror, um, why is why do the Norwegians want to do work here except for what they have to do? I mean, you know, Norwegians are a very efficient uh, group of you know country as a rule. They're very forward thinking, obviously with their embracement of electric cars or their future fund or or how they manage everything They're utilizing every part of a codfish, for example. And you know, when you look at how we manage our, if you put hydro or oil co up against Equinor, which is the state-owned oil company or energy company in Norway, I mean, you can see why. We I mean, need instead of having these difficult conversations, like how could, how can we be a jurisdiction that that they want to build things in? Instead we have to give away, because people guarantee the world need to be reminded that. Every bit of money we bribe them with, which ultimately is what it is with royalties, it's money that doesn't come to the taxpayers, and it goes Yes, it goes to the economy, but it, it goes out. If you look at the parking lot at any mega project, it's so full of large pickup trucks, and uh, who drive home to probably, in a lot of cases, big homes and nice summer homes and quads yeah. and side by sides, and all that is overconsumption.
1: And yeah, but that's that that's. One... That's neither here nor there with a benefits agreement. You know, the reason why we should demand maximizing the potential from that project is because the oil is ours. It's as simple as that. The Norwegians might be uh, efficient and have all the infrastructure required in Stavanger to do all of this work or to choose to bring it to a, a yard in Asia. But the fact remains is that it's a billion barrels of oil, which they don't own, but we do. So maximizing benefit for the people of the province just makes all the sense in the world. If it's an increased royalty to the government, as per some of the Equinor comments yesterday, and doubling the amount of subsidy infrastructure, money going to the government no way compares to money in people's pockets. If we're talking about impact for families and impact on the local economy, there's no measure. Spending on public policy and public programs is all fine and dandy. Education, highways, health care, up and down the line. But if you want to improve people's lot in life, it's a good-paying job. And so to not ensure that every one of those are achieved here is another, a yet another missed opportunity, isn't it?
16: Well, these are short-term jobs.
1: So, yeah, but you know, short-term not jobs not- are way better than a workforce that loses momentum, maybe loses tradespeople here, and consequently the next project down the line, we missed out on this one. And so, that again, that starts to snowball. That becomes a problem that is not based on one project. That becomes a problem that could last in perpetuity.
16: When the Americans built Argentia, they paid Newfoundlanders less. And that was because it's disruptive. Like you know, as a laborer with no education, you can go work out West White Rose. they're hiring by there. Anybody who wants a job who is underemployed right now, you can make $450 a day out in Argentia working on West White Rose. $450 a day. So if you're in the private sector, where how can you compete? The reason that the new that the Newfoundland government lobbied the Americans to pay the Newfoundlanders left because they didn't want to disrupt the labor market. That's what happens when you, you know, you create an entitled workforce and anybody who works out there will tell you you're not working your butt off out there. You're paid a ridiculous amount of money, which is not reasonable or a reasonable expectation to have. I mean, mega project has a mega project, but every one of those mega projects are paid for by the taxpayers in Newfoundland and Labrador. And always remember the people who need the money the most. ...are the ones that the government helps. Yeah, boy now, who money, the, more money that go, the more royalties what? that go to the Newfoundland government, the more money they can, they can give to people who need it the most, seniors, people who have, you know, are, are underemployed for, for a reason that they cannot control.
1: The government has money. Let's get that straight. And, you know, building uh, something decades ago is nowhere near akin to what it is today, and the taxpayer doesn't pay for those jobs. What are you talking so about?
16: It's less, well, it's, it, we don't pay any royalties where oil companies pay no royalties or income taxes until they get their capital costs back. And that includes every employee, every benefit that is given to a small number of people who work on these mega projects.
1: It depends on the, the agreement. It, it just does. Like the agreements we signed on Hibernia are nowhere near look like anything that we signed with Hebron, nor, nor do they look like what we signed with Terra Nova, nor do they look like what we signed at, at White Rose. So, you know... A reflective is something to learn from. It doesn't have to be the boilerplate for the next benefits agreement because there was once a time where the province had no interest in an equity stake. Now it seems to be the go-to. So what one benefits agreement looks like at Muskrat Falls or at Long Harbor or the potential for de Nord, these can all be very diff- uh, different things.
16: They could be. But when you have very, very well-organized, um, organized labor, who are focused on, I mean, the organized labor of these mega projects—they manage them. They make a lot of money from them. It isn't normal. Like you, your paycheck does not come from a company when you do one of these mega projects. It comes from the union, who makes money on on all the spread. But anyway, I don't want to beat it to death. Like all oh. I see is is system is a situation where it's it's broken, and we have to ask ourselves why nobody wants to build anything with land labor. I mean, that ultimately is the question. Like, why do we have to bribe them with our own money? Which is ultimately what we're doing. That's what Darren King is calling for. Make whatever trade-off it takes, which ultimately comes down to money. Like, that's what it comes down to. And I also want to – I just want to remind everybody of one thing, too, that oil company profits, even though they, there definitely should be some sort of windfall tax, that's corporate income tax that goes to the province, it goes to the feds. Also, those profits actually don't go to some magic rich uh, guy who sits around with gold. They go out to the Canada pension plan. They go out to the public sector pension plans they go to people's individual IRSPs in the form of dividends and stock
1: accumulation. So
16: so all that magic money that we talk about and that's not defending that they're making but, money but it's, but, it's Tom, something I want in the perspective.
1: But that perspective yep. is a little bit skewed isn't it because oil company profit if you're talking about Suncor's profitability or compared to Exxon Mobil's or BP it depends on where that uh, revenue was generated as to where they pay tax. So if you read that ExxonMobil made $55 billion last year, they didn't pay corporate tax in Canada to the tune of uh, taxes on $55 billion. It's just simply not how any of that stuff works.
16: No, and they manage... They, listen, I'm not def- I'm not defending oil companies. All I'm trying to do is just remind people that a lot of them indirectly or directly own shares, either through the Canada Pension Plan or the Public Sector Pension Plan, in these oil companies, so these big profits... Profit is not a bad word, as you always say. I mean, listen, they manipulate the whole world. They start wars. They do whatever. I'm not defending oil companies. All I'm saying is that the complexity. I just want people to try and think as widely and be educated and, and try and have as, 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 I guess, a complicated conversation as possible because that allows the nuances to come in and for us to not be so tunnel vision.
1: Sure. But even cost recovery, you know, when we have an equity stake, Jim Keating tells us that what we all thought was nothing comes back in the form of royalty and or uh, contracts being covered until they recover capital costs in full. Jim Keating says that's not true. So, I mean, I, I suppose he certainly knows more than I do about the oil industry. I've got to take my final break at the morning, Tom. Appreciate the time. So, sure, Just one
16: more thing I want to add on to quickly. that. Quickly. That, that they get a return on investment, too, 10%, 8.5% or the cost of capital, on all the money they spend too. Anyway, everyone take care. Stay safe.
1: And half of the commitment for spending has to be done in this province as per most benefits agreements in the past. Thank you, sir. Thanks, Tom. All the best. All right, bye-bye. Okay,
2: all right, final break. Don't go away. Saturday morning, join us for the Irish Newfoundland Show. Send your request to NL at vocm.com or submit them online at vocm.com.
0: This is Open Line on VOCM.
1: Welcome back to the show. Let's go to line number one. Say good morning to the president of the NL Fish and Wildlife Enforcement Officers Association. Whew, that's Tyler Cochran. Good morning, Tyler. You're on the air.
17: Hey, good morning, Patty. How are you?
1: Excellent. You? Good, good. Patty, just
17: calling in today um, just to remind everybody that it's the 10-year anniversary of the death of Officer Howard Labors. Um, Howard was one of our officers working up on the northern peninsula. And... Um, on this day, back in 2013, he um, unfortunately went through the ice and a snow machine um, and um, was not able to, uh, to to be saved that day. So we're just calling in today just to, uh, you know, ask your listeners to keep um, Howard and his family and the co-workers in everybody's, uh, everybody's minds today.
1: And learn lessons from?
17: Yeah, yeah, for sure. Um, unfortunately, you know... Still, in the past few years, I think even recently, um, there's still snow machines going through the ice. I mean, across the island today, um, there's mild weather. um, Ice conditions still aren't as safe as what people think they are. So, you know what, people really, really need to be careful um, when, when, when traveling on ice.
1: Is there a difference in one region or another how ice gets checked, or is it up to the individual to make sure that their route has safe ice?
17: Yeah, I think it's up to the individual. Um, You know, we've seen in the past that, you know, people have been traveling over certain conditions um, for years and um, they think it's safe. And then unfortunately, you know, they'll drive over to the same spot they've been driving over and and that's the time they go in. So I think it's important that um, every individual who's traveling on ice make sure that they check um, the ice conditions regularly, monitor the weather. Um, You know, if you're getting a mild spell, if it's getting any rain, anything like that, it's a good idea to definitely check the conditions um, no matter where you're too free to before you go out.
1: When I was a youngster, I had it in my head that the fire department did it for you because they, uh, we would play hockey on Kent's Pond, and because there was a fire hall right there, we used to see them all the time checking the ice, and we thought, oh, the fire hall guys tell us whether or not it's safe, but I think that was just their own local curiosity.
17: Yeah, I mean, you know, there are different organizations that definitely do check on the ice. Um, I'm even sure some of the snowmobile organizations um, we will check it from time to time, depending on where the crossings are. But again, you know what? It's not something you want to really want to play with. Um, it's super important that before you go on any ice, know the conditions. And um, if you don't think it's safe to travel on it, just stay off it.
1: Thanks for the message today and the anniversary of it. It's Howard Lavers. Is that what you said, Tyler?
17: Howard Lavers, that's correct. Yeah, it's the 10-year anniversary of his death today. I
1: wish we had more time to discuss a lot of things inside the envelope of wildlife enforcement officers. Maybe you'll make time for us again in the near future.
17: Yeah, sure. I'd love to.
1: Sounds good. Thank you, Tyler. Thanks, Eddie. Take good care. Bye-bye. Thank you. Tyler Cochran, president of the NL Fish and Wildlife Enforcement Officers Association. Let's go. Line 2, say good morning to the ED, the executive director of Trades NL, Darren King. Darren, you're on the air. Hey, Petty, how are you? Not too bad. Uh, let's get to it quickly before we run out of time. So now the most recent commentary coming from Equinor is that they would prefer the entire bay in order to production vessel be built at an international shipyard, but they're touting the almost doubling in subsea infrastructure and maybe more royalties of the province. Your takeaway?
18: Well, a couple of points come from the article this morning. Um, uh, by the way, first of all, let me pass on my condolences, Mr. Lavers, if you don't mind. Um, I was actually in the Minister of Justice when uh, Mr. Lavers uh, passed away, and I attended his funeral. So I just want to pass on my regards to uh, to the previous caller and to his family. It was a sad time indeed for the province, and certainly a certain extent, my condolences. Hear, here. Um, but yeah, so a couple of quick points, and I can call back another time if you'd like. Sure. First, first of all, um, the, the article this morning confirms what we've been saying, and I've been saying to you for months now that their intention was to construct the vessel out of the country. So I, I'm glad that's finally cleared up. Um, the thing that stands out to me, though, is it's still very vague on detail. The uh, subsea work, you know, we've been talking about that publicly, Um, the term, we've been given the term of eight years, Uh, the article today mentions 10 years uh, with no numbers, you know, very, very vague on details. And and that's a point that we've been driving home for ages, that no one really knows what this means when you talk about subsea work for eight years or 10 years. Um, the other piece I, pu- I pulled out of the article was that uh, he-, he said it's important to make the project competitive. We agree 100%. No one expects them to develop an uncompetitive project. But uh, you know, again, I remind people, this project was competitive at $35 a barrel break-even for 300 million barrels. Today, we're over $80 or so U.S. a barrel with confirmed of a billion barrels of oil available. So, um, I, you know, I, I fail to see where there's a lack of competitiveness. Uh, the fourth point I would make, and then I'll stop, is that the indicator is common to build outside of Norway, as they're proposing here. The example I would use, as I continue to use, is the John Casberg which was constructed in, uh, outside of Norway, the hall was. The rest of the work is being done in Norway as we speak. And I just uh, researched an article a few days ago that Nor- the Norwegians have actually invested millions of dollars into local yards to make sure they keep the work local.
1: So help uh, craft a message, if you are still in cabinet and part of these conversations, knew what was going on behind closed doors, so we can't include it all because we don't know about the implications of Article 82 and all that stuff is. But when it comes to benefits agreements and job on, jobs on shore, they know that we want and we need this project. We know that we own that oil. Where is the cutoff for sanction or not given benefits agreements, if you had your druthers. Is it uh, every bit of topsides here or we don't sanction it, or is there more compromise and understanding doubling the subsea infrastructure with more detail, more detail around uh, benefits to the province?
18: I think there, there there's a combination of both. Um, you know, obviously our position is we'd like to see all the top sides work here because we've done it before and we've shown that we can do it. Uh, for if I were sitting in government, I think that we'd have to find a way to find a compromise forward that makes this a true partnership and not just a win-win for the for the uh, oil company. Um, and I don't know what that looks like. Uh, it, it's very difficult to give a firm. Comment when, as I said before, you know, there's a lack of transparency here around information being provided. Um, I mean, the theme for me running through the, the story this morning is almost a trust me approach that we're going to do this project and make it right for you, and there's a lot of benefits for you, and trust us, we'll make it right. And that, that just doesn't cut it anymore. You know, people need to understand what we're talking about here. You know, I mean, you know, frankly, I'm hoping that more people will engage in this discussion, more groups who have a vested interest in this for the province than just Trades and L, because this is a project for the entire province. It's not just a project for trades in L. There are companies and communities and organizations that will benefit tremendously or lose out tremendously, depending on which
1: way this decision goes. This is the most unique deal of its type, as far as I can tell. It'll be Canada's first deepwater well, number one. Secondly, the complexities of it being outside our economic protective zone make this different than every other oil negotiation in the past. So even if we're talking about benefits agreements and equity stake and jobs here or not, the uh, type of royalties afforded to the province that bit of article 82 makes this one extremely complicated or am I am I overstepping it
18: no i think you're absolutely right on that and and you know that's a piece I, i'm not in much of a position to comment on because i don't know the details but i think you're absolutely right the the fact of where this is located puts a, a, another variable in this equation that we've not been used to in past developments. So uh, I'm certain that, you know, there's likely three-way discussions here. It's not just government and Equinor for local benefits. No doubt the federal government has to be a part of this at some point. Uh, You know, so how all that will shake out is, is as my dad used to say, a $64,000 question that nobody can answer right now. Um, but, you know, you know, our position hasn't changed. And, and really the article today hasn't brought any real new information that's changed any, anything about what we've been saying. And, you know, we've got slides that we've shared with people, and, and anyone who's seen those can say today, yeah, trade now said this three months ago. Everything that he said in the article today uh, is, is just confirming what we've been saying. Um, but, look, I, I realize you're running out of time. Maybe we can find an opportunity in another day or so for me to call back and elaborate on a couple of points, including, by the way, I heard one of your previous callers Uh, indicating that perhaps we should be lowering our standard of living and talk about our total workforce. I'd love to respond to that at some point in time as well.
1: I figured you would, and you're welcome to come back this week.
18: Thanks, Patty. Appreciate it.
1: Thanks, Darren. Bye-bye. I wish you had more time because there's a lot to that. Uh, that That's Darren King, the Executive Director of Trades and L. Good show today. Big thanks to everyone who supports the program, and we will indeed pick up this conversation again tomorrow morning right here on VOCM and Big Land FM's Open Line. On behalf of the producer, France King, I'm your host, Patty Daly. Have yourself a safe, fun, happy day. We'll talk in the morning. Bye-bye.